We couldn't afford to live in the old house anymore. Plus, the new story I'm writing is here. Is the story a good one this time? I'm gonna write the best book that anybody's ever read. I got a really good feeling about this. <laughs> you gotta be kidding me. Family hanging out. Barbecue 79. That's the family who lived here. You think these are serial murders? I don't know. First one I found dates back to the 60s. The only link between all these cases is the symbol. The symbol is associated with a pagan deity named Bagul. He consumes the souls of human children. actually lived in the images themselves and that they were gateways into his realm. Children exposed to the images were especially vulnerable to Bagul's abduction. Sweetheart, what are you doing? Painting. I wanted to paint her picture. Who are you talking about? Stephanie. She used to live here. What's happened? Get the kids, pack the car. We have to leave here now. everyone welcome back to the pod and the pendulum the horror movie podcast covering all horror movie franchises one movie in one episode at a time i'm your host mike snoonian joined once again by my co-host Lindsay travis Lindsay, how are you feeling good you know uh as good as one can feel i mm-hmm. guess yeah not you're bad. living not bad. in a country that is not currently trying to start a civil war which is nice you know yeah i mean highest bar but yeah yeah pretty pretty low bar so as we record this right now like how the sausage is made like donald trump has been impeached for the second time so yay mm-hmm. um and it's really weird so yeah. it's, it's been a been a hell of a week hell of a week so uh we are here to talk about one of my favorite movies of the past 10 years we're gonna 
spend the next two episodes diving into Sinister and Sinister 2, which I'm really excited for. Yeah, me too. So we have a guest tonight coming at us from the Bloody Blunts Cinema Club podcast. We have Devon Taylor. Devon, how are you? So we have a guest with us tonight joining us from the Bloody Blunt Cinema Club. We have podcast host Devon Taylor. Devon, how are we doing? I'm doing fantastic. Thank you for having me. Um, This is one of my all-time favorites. Um, I've seen this movie uh, way too many times to count, so I am excited to finally uh, dive into it in a podcast Mm -hmm. form. Haven't covered it on my show or on any other show, so um, I got lots for you. Excellent. Yeah, so it's... It's something that we covered before on my other show, uh, the Psychoanalysis Podcast. We covered it looking at some of the themes of paranoia, but I am always like up for talking about this movie because I really think it's one of the best ones of the, the past decade. So my question for you, Devon, we always like to ask our guests, um, what is it about this particular series and this movie in particular that like drew you in for the first time? Um, You know, it's... I, I think it is kind of um, the uh, it's the pseudo found footage angle. I'd say uh, found footage is one of my favorite horror subgenres, mm-hmm. but I do like that um, we have a film like this one that's like kind of like an in between. You know, I mean, obviously, it's uh, plays out like a pretty you know standard film, but just the significant use of you know the extra film, um, I think adds that extra layer to it you know and so it's just something that sucked me in um from that angle but then just as well of it just being a very well-rounded like written film like from Mm -hmm. you know the the characters and the family drama which is kind of something I float to now more than the actual horror elements on top Mm -hmm. of it um you know just having the great horror elements but it was also um this was a movie that came out my freshman year of college and this one it has great rewatchability to it so Mm -hmm. um i've even gotten to tell scott derrickson this himself but like this was a film that me and my roommate we would um repeat watch it like on different dorm room dates because Mm -hmm. it was like one a movie that we liked we knew where all the scary beats were and it's like this is a like pretty scary movie but not like too scary to like put anyone like it's it's just a it's a good date night movie when you when you think about it so this was um a movie that got a lot of replay value that year (laughs) when you would get to like the lawnmower jump scare would you tell the date like you might want to cover your eyes for a second or like try to get their attention for a moment or oh no like that's the that's the one where it's like you like you know do something a little extra to get them you know, uh-huh. you, you poke them in the ribs or um, or I had my roommate like mm-hmm. I, 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 w- I texted my roommate and I told him when to call me. So that mm-hmm. way my phone went off like right, like right Excellent. afterwards, like like, you know, that's the lawnmower one. That's when it's like, OK, now it's like this. Now is, you, you want to fuck with your dates, basically. Yes. Excellent. Oh, yeah. Excellent. <laughs> I had a couple friends that lived with one another, like when the ring came out, um, one of them took the remote from the television set. It would go outside and like change the input on the TV. So it would go to like the gray static and just completely freak out his roommate, like time and time again, after that movie hit. Yeah. That's the, that's the stuff I'm talking about. (laughs) Excellent. Excellent. So we're going to get along just fine. So it's, it's interesting. You bring up like found footage. I think one of the really kind of fascinating things about this movie is it kind of exists in between 
two like distinct eras in horror right now. Like it kind of predates like the A24 what I would call like prestige horror. Like we don't want to use elevated horror here because people would come at us with pitchforks at that point. Um, Me you know, included. You included. Yeah, me too. <laughs> Myself you know, included. I think that label gets thrown around incorrectly, but I don't, I think there is a thing is like, there is some horror that is like, look, some horror is just meant to be like date night, get the kids in the, you know, your Friday the 13th. And then there's like, you know, when you look at Friday the 13th and, cha- and the Changeling, for example, like mm-hmm. both of those are horror movies, but one of them is probably like a little bit more like thematically deeper and richer and has a higher caliber of actor mm-hmm. and more of a budget that goes into it. And I've put Lindsay to sleep and she's like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, but I don't think that makes great. Excellent. Uh, hey, it's been a good show. Uh, anyway, we'll thanks back. so much for tuning in and so, we'll see you guys next week. Um, I've, I've been derailed at this point. It's all right. Uh, I'm already firing on half a cylinder tonight and I've already been no. on off the rails. Um, but I would say like it, it, there's like this idea that like, oh, it can't be horror because it's too good to be a horror movie, which is bullshit. Like mm. that's when mm-hmm. elevated horror gets thrown out incorrectly. Well, it can't be horror movie. Uh, it's too good. Um, whereas like some movies are like the date and like this is like right around the time that found footage movies became a real thing. Like, you know, I think Paramount at the time was saying we're going to give like a bunch of directors a million bucks and see what they can do because you knew there was no way they're going to lose money paranormal activity is like churning things out year after year at this point and they're raking in the money you get the last exorcism which i think is a that's one we got to cover at some point mm, that one's an underrated one oh, they made a sequel really right i was gonna say that could be a good one-off but they i think there's a second a sequel yeah, the last we, exorcism yeah. part two is like Rambo first blood part two. Um, it's, it's not, good. It's, <laughs> it's not a good movie. Um, like, yeah. Isn't like, Oh gosh. Now I feel going to be wrong, but um, you know, Blumhouse is like, is like the house paranormal activity built. And then this is coming right after that. that. Um, yeah. yeah that all makes that sense. Was, it, it was one of Blumhouse's like, yeah, like first early, things the very first paranormal activity was like one of the very mm-hmm. first ones that like got put under under like the official like blumhouse yeah. banner but yeah. but like mike i know i know what you were like getting at and like making the the distinction between like what type of horror it is because i think that played into like the marketing of this movie as well because like i kind of went back and it's like i i watched the trailer and i remember like seeing like some of the artwork and it's like they very much more market this as a, a typical you know, spooky, spooky, gotcha. Mm-hmm. This is gonna be a jumpy, jumpy movie, and they very much don't play up that this is more right. of a you know character's descent into paranoia, and mm-hmm. like you know that it is more balanced, and this is mm-hmm. more of that you know this isn't just a a popcorn horror. I, right. I would say you know this because, is yeah because your typical like sixteen or seventeen year old kid going out on date night doesn't really care about the intricacies of like the downward turn of the real estate market and the housing Mm -hmm. bubble circa 2010, 11, and 12, right? (laughs) They're not really down for that. Yeah. Or Ethan Hawke's dope sweaters. Oh, we are definitely, we're going to pour one out for my good friend, Jen (laughs) Faradu, and we're going to spend a lot of time talking about like Daddy Hawk and his sweaters. (laughs) His sick sweater. It was like, I got to tell you, like I remember recording i even got a little uncomfortable hearing like the thirstiness when we were recording about 
sinister oh between like Jen and Lara. It was something else. Like it was. Listen, Ethan Hawke, horror icon. Okay. He really is. Let's talk about all the stuff he's mm-hmm. done. I mean, this is kind of what he, he did this and the purge, purge right around the same time. Not necessarily horror, but like Gattaca. Uh, yeah. We do like a turn to hard mm-hmm. sci-fi. Um, Daybreakers as well, which is another yeah. fantastic horror movie. Um, uh, predestination. That's what I was just I mean, gonna say. Is predestination. I mean, he's a genre daddy in general. Yeah, yeah. Just horror, like you know, he does mm-hmm. touch like the sci-fi corner, the horror corner. I mean, mm-hmm. First Reform can even be thrown in the genre. True, room the world, true. Right? You know, he, before sunset, you know, because they have to the scary get movie. in. You have to get in before the vampires come out. That's why that's they right. call it before sunset. That's <laughs> what it, it's my, a sequel, yeah. That's my understanding of Super the movie sequel. that I've yeah. never seen. So it's why the reason why I like oh sorry, go ahead. No, you first. I'm gonna say the the reason why I kind of am always like jokingly Ethan Hawke horror icon is there are a lot of really excellent like A-list actors that always show up in one or two horror movies and you kind of like don't remember that like Jessica Chastain did like a boring horror movie. Well, I mean, I liked it, but like a an okay horror movie, stuff like that, mm-hmm. which I love. And it's like, Ethan comes back to us every so often. He's like, oh, hey guys. Yeah. <laughs> Missed you. I'm going to make Sinister now. Mm-hmm. And now he's going to be in uh, Robert Eggers' new joint. So he's, yeah. he's coming back oh, to us. Gosh, you know. And I think that's guy. fantastic. I think, you know, there were how many years did Kevin Bacon go not acknowledging that he got his first like real big break in Friday the 13th. Like that's just a movie that he would never talk about, Uh, you know, until a few years ago when he's like, Oh, wait a minute. Like horror movies make money, like sign me up. And you know, then he'll talk about his experience making that in a much more pleasant way. So Mm -hmm. I, the one thing about horror as a genre is like, I am always a fan of movies where I, I'm not familiar with the cast. And I know, Devon, you talked about your, your love of found footage movies. And I think one of the real strengths of that particular subgenre is you typically don't know the performers. And I think what makes like the Blair Witch Project, which is one of my all time favorite movies work so well, uh, is that like you don't, at the time at least, didn't recognize the cast. And one of them no longer works in the industry and another one is like a middle school principal at this point. So you kind of, you know, you always have that kind of um, air of like secrecy or veracity to it. You know, the mm-hmm. paranormal activity movies work because like Mika and Katie feel like two very real people. It's not, you know, if they went by the original idea, like we're going to remake this movie and like Tom Cruise and Cameron Diaz are going to be the couple in it that movie probably doesn't work quite so well because then it's like Tom Cruise getting thrown around a bedroom, you know, and there's probably more airplane stunts in it as well (laughs) at that point. Tom Cruise getting thrown around a bedroom was just a lot for me to hear you say. Imagine imagine Tom Cruise running from a ghost. I mean, we know he runs good. I mean, I would watch it 500 Mm -hmm. times. It might be an entertaining as fuck movie. Um, Literally, it would already be my, it's already my favorite movie. Your all-time favorite movie. It's my favorite movie of all time. Throw us some money, Jason Blum. We know you have that Halloween 2018 money to fall back on. Give us $10 million. We will write it. We'll tell Tom Cruise it's a down low pitch for Scientology. We'll just get Miles Fisher to do it as a deep fake. Now we only need like (laughs) 
you know, we, we only need two million from Jason Blum now. <laughs> <laughs> we have to yeah. make this shit happen. Mm-hmm. Our friend I mean, Brad McCarg and Becky Sayers are trying to get giving up the ghost made. So Jason yeah. Blum, give our good friends Brad McCarg and Becky Sayers the money. We will get you Tom Cruise lookalike number three, I think we determined. I said he was in the top three. He's in the top three. I, and I didn't determine a ranking, but he's in the top three. And we will make you some money. Again, mm-hmm. folks, I am firing on half a cylinder tonight and I'm going <laughs> this to is get movie magic, guys. tomorrow. So this is... Yeah, uh, this is official copywritten content. So Yeah, it's going to be... Someone else is going to have to carry the load for me tonight in terms of bringing... <laughs> depth and intelligence to the conversation i may not be there um so devon tell us a little bit like you're talking about how this is a date night movie and what do you think like when did it start to shift for you when it went from being like you said like a spooky spooky movie to more about this family and the plight that they're in and kind of like the dynamics especially between i would say like husband and wife and husband and daughter Mm mm-hmm um, it, I mean, it was it was not too long after, but I think it it was whenever I was kind of you know starting to develop as an artist and as a creator myself, and then kind of then seeing you know the the plight that Ellison is dealing with, you know, in in his you know lust for his you know past fame and kind of you know the the reasons that you make what you make, you know, and how those reasons can shift and stuff. So once I like kind of started noticing that that's when I was like okay there's a lot more character stuff going on here than I realize and then also how that plays into you know a relationship you know um you know in how in the role that your partner plays in that you know and kind of um the way you have to kind of shift your thinking you know whenever you have a family now and you Mm -hmm. have to approach things in a different way including the way that you you know are doing your work and creating i suppose so just like that's what i kind of started uh zoning into a little bit more once like because obviously it's like after i kind of know you know more of the horror beats and stuff that's when you really get to just like kind of sit back and be like wow like that was a really great naturalistic argument between that couple just now you know it's like whenever you like notice things like that um over you know the the spooky spookies going on Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. this movie really gives you a real sense of how, like, like what struck me on the rewatch for this show was how Mm -hmm. difficult things have been for Tracy in particular. Like, Mm -hmm. you get the sense that Ellison gets so wrapped up in his work. And I think, like, a lot of us are guilty of that at times. I know, like, I get in modes where I'm, like, completely consumed by work and don't really notice the world around me during that stretch. And he's so driven by kind of want to recapture that moment that he really had that 15 minutes you could get the sense that it's you know it's about the money but not really about the money it's really about the accolades for him um but Mm -hmm. tracy it's about not being able to go to the grocery store with like without people leaving the aisle that she's shopping in at that moment it's about getting calls from school that like the sun is acting out and showing and you know, being exposed to things that like he really shouldn't be exposed to at that point. And this idea that you're kind of like constantly on the go or constantly on the move or constantly like fear, fear, feeling whispers in other people's eyeballs on you when that's not something that you really asked for at all. 
Yeah, I feel like there's this um, element of this like um, paternal sense of responsibility. Like he needs to make money for his family um, so that they can live in the house they want to live in and, you know, whatever. But he doesn't want to do it writing textbooks. That's not what he can do. So he kind of has these like competing responsibilities where, I mean, in a lot of ways, uh, I didn't think I was going to go here, but it just happened now. Very comparable to a movie like Mom and Dad about like losing yourself to um, your age and your responsibilities as a parent. And he kind of does that, right? Like he wants to be the cool writer, but he's a husband and a family man and he has to take care of all those things. And so he's watching these like glory moments of, he's saying that he doesn't care about the fame, but he's like watching himself on TV mm-hmm. talking about not caring about the fame, which <laughs> I love. I think that's one of the best parts. Um, and he's balancing that need, you know, he's saying I'd have to write textbooks if I wanted to live in the house that we lived in and, and kind of balancing his responsibility, which is why I think uh, it coming after his kids is really clever. And even though it ends up ripping his wife apart, it really comes for his kids. And it's kind of showing that like, he's actually hurting his family, like mm-hmm. almost that fear that he's hurting his family in a way. It's not just because he's hurting them by focusing on a career that's not as comfortable for them but it's like it's actually manifesting as a ghost that is coming for them which i think is interesting yeah a a thing that i like thought that um juliet rylance like really brought like through tracy's performance is the sense that like also that they've done this like before like you know without them having to have a bunch of you know exposition about the past you know what happened when he was writing certain books or things like that you just already get that sense out the gate from it just in their actions and their interactions and and the thing is like you know it ellison has this all these insecurities about his writings about um his his status about his fame he has all these insecurities and yet they never stem from you know tracy tracy you know despite the fact that this is however many times they've done this you know we don't know truly how many times they move but we just know that's been multiple times and you and you get that you know and oh man i was going somewhere else that's okay um we're uh, talking about her performance and how it brings a lot of that to it oh and and um you know, she's, she's never given up on him is the sense that you get. Like, you know, she, she does not ever like, um, you know, criticize his writing. She never says anything like that, but he just like kind of assumes that and like takes that out. But you can always, you can also tell that she's, you know, almost to that breaking point, like, okay, like how many more times can I do this? But she, she never once in the film had like ever gives up on him, you know, despite where his head is at in the situation they're in. You get a real fear, sense of he fear that he's peaked. That's the thing that really jumps out in this, and that he bursts out of the gate with like this amazing work that you know was like basically it comes off like the in cold blood of his generation. Like I think it's called Kentucky Blood or Kentucky Red. Um, Kentucky Blood, yeah. Kentucky Blood, where he he's come out of the gate and he's this hot shot new writer, and then there's this enormous amount of pressure for him to kind of replicate that success. And you can tell that like there are corners that he's cut in order to do that. Like uh, the, like the sheriff uh, says to him, played by Fred Thompson, the sheriff is like, look, like first book was great. Your next two books though, you got it wrong and um, you ruined innocent person's life and you didn't do it because um, you know, 
it just things lined up the wrong way for you. You did it because you cut corners and you got sloppy and you were more concerned with like what the pre-sales are going to be in the book than whether or not it was really about like justice. And you really get that sense when he's watching himself back on the talk show circuit that he is aware enough to have this sense of kind of like real regret and real self-loathing in that moment in terms of what he sees, what he's become. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the whole like you're next to mess with innocent people, like I know that it's kind of raised the stakes, but I found that like so unnecessary because it almost makes you dislike the character in a way that you don't need to. Like mm -hmm. I'm totally fine with kind of disliking this like struggling writer putting his family in danger. Um, it's almost like, you know, an unanswered Gail Weathers bit that I wish mm. kind of didn't happen, but I don't know, I guess it's kind of nitpicky, but I, I always kind of thought of that as like, uh, whatever, I guess that's why the cop hates them. Right. I mean, I actually kind of like it because okay. I, that was, that was something I put in my notes was like the, this exchange stood out to me more than it did in other recent rewatches. Cause you know, from the very beginning, we kind of get this extra sense of arrogance and like, you know, we're gonna, and then once we like get to the point where he's, you know, watch himself back, you know, you, you do realize like Ellison is kind of very arrogant, pathetic mm -hmm. almost, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. and like, and just the fact that, you know, and that's also just a testament to Ethan Hawke's performance that he can still bring the sense of relatability and that performance you know, even though he is, you know, kind of to the side where I think you're supposed to dislike him to a, to a certain degree. And then, you know, he, and he's so defensive too, like the, um, the, whenever he's like, uh, the sheriff asks him if he has a thing against, you know, um, you know, the police and the work they do. And then he's like, no, it's not the police. I just think they, you know, not all of them get it right. And then, you know, the sheriff has a retort right back to him. That's like, basically like, like okay slow your horses like okay mm -hmm. you got and like you say he like kind of points out like you did good work on the first book maybe even got lucky but then didn't you know sustain it so that's a good point. just that like exchange just like really does like kind of put ellison in a hole for me yeah. and then his yeah. you know experiences through it kind of is what wins me back on his side a little bit and ellison has these kind of like practiced lines you can tell that he's almost, as he's like talking to the sheriff, that he's kind of like writing a rough draft of that chapter in his head. Like, we moved to this new town as we were unpacking our belongings. Like, we hadn't even gotten all the boxes off the moving van when the sheriff pulled up to run us out of town. And I said to him, whenever someone tells me that I'm on the wrong track, that just lets me know I'm on the right one. You can tell that he's like <laughs> writing his draft in his head. Um and, he, and, and he's called out on it. And the sheriff is like, mm -hmm. that sounds really good. I'm sure it'll end up in your book. What I found really an exchange that I found really telling on this rewatch was right at the end when he moves back into his old home and deputy so-and-so calls him and he throws it a little line and it's not meant as a dig, but I think it's so telling in terms of like how good Ellison's or how lacking Ellison's like investigative skills actually are he's like mm -hmm. you know once I looked at you know the pattern of like who was killed and where they were killed it was so easy like you know it was such an easy thing and it's so obvious and mm -hmm. it wasn't meant to be like a dig at Ellison but I think that that was really telling about what really what did Ellison really care about was it like the prose mm -hmm. and the writing and the book sales or was it doing like the hard-hitting 
journalism and research it would really need to do to get this right. I mean, yeah. Ellison is tested really early on in the film because he finds those tapes and he starts watching them and he calls the cops and says it's an emergency. And then when they answer, he's like, oh, never mind. So it really, he's tested right away and he fails right away. Yeah. Well, I guess, depending what your perspective is, he fails right away. Um, it's like right out the gate, he's decided I'm keeping this information for myself and for my book, um, which obviously makes you kind of question his integrity and what he's doing. And, you know, he wants to be the one to blow the lid off of this. He doesn't want the police to be able to do it. So mm -hmm. he could have given those things to the cops or he could have asked the sheriff those questions. He didn't. He asked deputy so-and-so and he uh, kept the tapes for himself. So he gets tested right mm -hmm. away um, and fails. And it's kind of cool to see what he does with that. Yeah. I mean, he, I, I mean, he does fail because it's again, like, you know, he, yeah. that he, yeah. he tells the sheriff that he doesn't judge, you know, that it's not about, you know, that the cops aren't doing good enough work, but what, but what he's doing there is him literally saying like, no, I can do this investigation better. So yeah. So never mind. Let me hang up this 911 call. Yeah. And then, you know, and then like, just like that ending scene too, like kind of hinting at, his ineptness is you know deputy so-and-so has the line where he's like you know not only is this guy still out there and he's still doing it you literally put yourself into into uh, the uh <laughs> circle you know which you is exactly all you need yeah which is exactly what he did all you need is admiral akbar popping up behind him going it's a trap and it's it would have been absolutely perfect at that um, point I mean, on that note, I think that's obviously that's this movie's twist. That's this movie's whole game. That's this movie's whole bit. I almost feel like it did work backwards. Um, you know, it was Robert Cargill who wrote it. Uh, I think he wrote it alongside Scott Derrickson, who directed it. Mm -hmm. um, and he said it was inspired by a dream that he had about uh, after watching The Ring. And I mean, Cargill is very vocally like, I'm a writer and I like care about his writing and I love writing. So it would make really? sense that, he, yeah, I don't know if you've heard of him. He, he really likes writing. <laughs> he never mentioned it. <laughs> and uh, so it actually makes sense that his protagonist would be like a writer. Um, mm -hmm. You know, write what you know, I guess. Well, it's like Stephen um, King, like Stephen every King. protagonist is like a writer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, that wasn't a dig. I just mean like mm -hmm. it makes perfect sense. I don't mean it's a dig, but it almost feels like it worked backwards from a twist. And I won't speak for him on that point, but. Um, it's kind of a cool twist because it circumvents that thing. Like, I love those things in movies that, um, you know, you want to shout at the screen that it happens every time. Why don't they ever learn it? But we like accept it. And the family never moves out of the haunted house, right? Every movie you're like, oh, I would have moved out of there right away, mm -hmm. but they never move out. And so I kind of love that this feels like it started as like, okay, what if moving out is the thing that gets you mm -hmm. though? You know, you're in the haunted house, these strange things keep happening. And what if when you move out is when it kills you? And like it, that's a really cool premise. And it yeah. kind of gets buried really quickly in the ending because it feels like it was like an idea that then they were like, okay, now let's work backwards and make the story about this writer. But like, what a cool ending. Like what a cool mm -hmm. twist that... I, I love it and I don't want to diminish it because it's so dope, but um, it does kind of suck that it only matters for like a second. Right. It doesn't <laughs> because it can pull the rug out from under you at that point. Mm -hmm. I mean, I like I like the way it functions, like mm -hmm. the, the reveal of it and like the way the information comes about. But yeah. then it's like, but then, because like I said, I watch this movie a lot and I just like kind of think about it. And now I'm like, Bagul, Mr. Boogie, what, what, 
is your angle mm-hmm. why is it is it a reverse psychology thing that he's thinking like aha i know i'm gonna get them because they're gonna move back and that's whenever i actually get yeah. them because that's what i actually want and it's like what kind the of real estate game are you tro- playing here well, the ghoul hates horror movie tropes he's like i'm gonna circumvent tropes that's, that's true he is a filmmaker I mean, <laughs> yeah yeah an eccentric <laughs> filmmaker so that makes perfect sense <laughs> i mean bagul yeah. as a villain is like the weak link in the movie like there's really there's really not much to him at all and like every time like i hear i just want to yell bagul because it just sounds like it would be it's so fun to say yeah it's super fun to say that it is actually <laughs> scary like Bagool, you know like Bagool. it's funny sounds like it's something like... you should yell when you're orgasm <laughs> <laughs> like the mr boogie joke with the ghoul it's funny because like mr boogie is decidedly not boogeyman Mm -hmm. which is like why i would love to know why they were like no we can't Mm -hmm. call him the boogeyman we're gonna name him the ghoul so we can call him mr boogie which okay i love it it's great i mean i kind of i think that makes sense for like the little yeah. kids because like a little kid's not gonna be able to like pronounce bagul so they're no, just but like but it's boogie. so close to boogeyman like kids say boogeyman i don't know it's sure. bizarre and i love it um and <laughs> bagul babadook was in the same time ish mm-hmm. and then i always think of like the seinfeld where elaine says boogity man by mm-hmm. accident mm-hmm. and they all I don't remember that one. Oh my god she just says boogity for no reason and they all just like roast her for a bit and so every time i think of a ghoul i think of boogity <laughs> i think of elaine you think, I think of, of elaine my good bennis. friend elaine bennis she's like I mean, what did i say um I, I would think of them like i would think of bagul as like a, maybe not a weak link but more underused because I think there was just, there's a lot there. Like, I like the look, like mm-hmm. the, the look at how he's like wet and has these weird gloves on and then the smeared mouth. Like, it's a great look in like kind of the way that they flash them. And mm-hmm. I don't know, it's funny because like would, because don't we also like have an issue like, you know, the horror community in general of like, oh, they used him too much and he's in the mood too much. And now we're like complaining like, ah, they didn't use him enough. Right. But like, you know, and then, just maybe just because the lore was just like you know so skimmed over with the mm-hmm. vincent d'onofrio scenes right. it's just kind of like here's your lore boom bam boom and like we don't you know kind of get more from that i still yeah. haven't seen sinister 2 so i don't know if there's mm. more of that in the sequel but just from what it, we're given here though like there there could have been so more the funny thing with vincent d'onofrio is like he's like i'll be in your movie but I'm not leaving my living room. He's like, like just, uh, that's so wonderful. He's like, he, it's the, she's all that um, Cisco thing where he like, didn't actually shoot any scenes with anyone. He did them like all in his studio. I didn't um, know. I've never seen. She's all that. Oh, not so. Yeah. She's all that. If you watch it. Oh my God. You've never seen. She's all that. That's no. our Patreon episode. Um, it's not. He's like, <laughs> it's narrator's like, voice. It's not. He's like decidedly in the movie and I've seen it a thousand times, but there's mm-hmm. like, I read a tweet once then it was like, okay. And anyway, any, for whatever reason, it came to my attention that Cisco's never actually with the cast. And you're like, oh my God. Yeah. It's always like they cut to him in his studio talking because he's like the <laughs> DJ at school. And it's so funny. Like he's never actually interacts with anyone. And it's but... like super obvious or like characters are standing outside a convenience store and then it cuts to him and he's behind, <laughs> he's behind a desk. Is it like that? It's bad? not obvious because I didn't, notice for like 20 years mm-hmm. until someone pointed out to me i was like oh yeah 
Um, but yeah, it's very much the same thing that he does. Um, but yeah, there's that exposition dump. I'm kind of okay with it because I think it fits in with movies like, I mean, it doesn't always work, but like movies like Lights Out do that. Like there's a lot of movies where there's some arbitrary guy who just fills mm-hmm. you in on the lore really quickly. It happens every movie in that category. Like I think it happens in Mama. I think it happens in um, Z. Um, there's always like that moment where someone kind of explains what's going on. Um, and I think it's fine. It, it's, if anything, the reason why it feels less good here, but I don't really want to say that. I don't think it's less good, to be honest. But um, it's because the lore is like really, really thought out and we don't really need it. Like you could have very easily been eater of souls, but yeah. there's this whole, the symbols and mm-hmm. tying it to other right. pagan deities. And it could have very and easily been like, and- yeah. Um, it could have been like simpler than that, but I kind of like it. I think it's fun. I like uh, character creation. So I'm always down to get like obsessive about either a fake or a real character. And like I did, like I did read everything about, so Bagul's not real. He was a creation for the movie. Well, he was created for the movie. I'm not saying, you know, that any deities are more or less real, but um, but he his lore is based on interactions with real deities or real lore deities that existed before this movie, depending on mm-hmm. your perspective. Um, which I think is really fun and cool. I'm in with it. I like the way he looks. I like his little like uh, diamond eyes. I think they look like um, cards. Like it reminds me of playing cards. And uh, the, I think if anything, the thing they lose is when they show him, I wish he was blurry all the time. Mm-hmm. I don't like when like, there's that moment where Ethan Hawke zooms in on one of the photos of him in the background. And it's like this blurry reflection of him. And, and then the he like po- clicks zoom and all of a sudden it's like a perfect HD image right. of Bagul. I'd rather he was like always blurry. Well, mm-hmm. I love that moment where he is looking at like the photograph of his backyard and lowers the photo. And you see this like him and he's like bone white in the lighting as, as well, which is like this really yeah. kind of like chalky color to him. And it's just that to me is one of the great little stinger. And this is a, a movie that does, you know, I think at times that there's one thing about it that like knocks it down like an eighth of a peg. Sometimes it gets a little bit too stinger heavy. It's, you know, even like the very end, like that last image of the film, I would almost pause just it. why. What's that? <laughs> you know? I said, just why that one at the end. Right. Right. It's, it's like, like why? it's almost like he's playing peekaboo with a baby at that point. You know, I mean, okay. kind of... yeah. Who is he doing that for? Yeah. <laughs> this was like the pinnacle of jump scare time. Like I mm-hmm. love jump scares. I could yell about why I love them for a hundred hours, oh, but there's please no, do. but well, let's do it <laughs> yeah. for a half hour. I love the jump scare. I think there's all different kinds of scares and, um, I this I wrote about like this is a really long time ago I wrote about um kind of the evolution of scares and I compared this is in Grimm magazine and I talked about like that bit in Monsters University if anyone's seen it um Mm -hmm. and there's this bit in Monsters University where it's you know it's a prequel and the monsters are learning how to scare people and they realize they're not scaring the kids anymore like all of their like things aren't scaring the kids so then they adapt and they learn to do things like the like kiki ki mama ma shit where they're like mm-hmm. doing different kinds of subtle scares because the way we get scared has changed and i think that's jump scares obviously they weren't like created in the early aughts but like um there was a huge rise of jump scares especially with things like paranormal act- paranormal activity we were right in the middle of it like sinister came out when it was like blumhouse central where it was like lee 1l um mm-hmm. 
oh my gosh, uh, what's his name? Creepy puppet. What's his real name? James, James Wan. Wan. Um, mm-hmm. Like they were making like jump scare nonsense. This was mm-hmm. the time for it. They got Ethan Hawke in a movie where things are just supposed to make you like yelp. So like mm-hmm. as much as that final jump scare is like, ugh, why? I'm like, hell yeah. They took like a dope scary movie and threw one big jump scare at us. And I think it's awesome. Counterpoint. <laughs> my, my counterpoint to that though is you have at the end that shot of like the projector and Mm -hmm. the tape sitting in that box and you know that what's going to happen is it's just waiting there for the next person now to move into the ellison home and then Mm -hmm. the cycle is going to repeat itself there's something that's so unnerving and the way not only that because it lingers for so long in that box box like i know for me like i start to like go back and think about like the cycle of violence that has been perpetuated Mm -hmm. throughout the movie and like now you're adding like one more notch to it and there's something that's so unnerving about sitting there with it that all of a sudden it's almost like someone like snaps their fingers in front of you at that point and then you you jump and then you have a little bit of a giggle and then you kind of go about at that point do i think that jump scares are bad like no like jump scares in and of themselves like they're not inherently a bad thing um but it's like if you're a carpenter um, you need more than one tool in the tool belt. Like you can't just have like a Phillips head screwdriver and then so say <laughs> go bang in these nails now into the wall. Yeah. I mean, what I love about the jump scares in this one, because I'm I'm a fan of jump scares too. I think just the whole prowess behind it is if, you know, the difference between earned ones and unearned jump scares. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I yes. give this one a pretty good high percentage. I'd say, you know, 90% of the mm-hmm. jump scares in this ones are very well earned, you know, coming mm-hmm. in, you know, not just at a random time, but then also, you know, most of the time the sounds make sense within it yeah. too. Like I hate, I hate when it's a jump scare and then there's the, the random sound cue and it's like, but where is that sound coming from? That's mm-hmm. just, that's just a scare cue versus in yeah. this one, they actually use, you know, the sound design, which is a, huge component in this film the sound design is impeccable you know Mm -hmm. between the use of the film and the score and you know just the the sounds within it so it's like this one you know it it has jump scares but it's just like this is one of those movies that's a great example to be like like this one and i would say of course like insidious and the conjuring which all came out Mm -hmm. around this Mm -hmm. 2012 2013 time which are these ones you could be like hey these are examples of how to use jump scares properly, you know, to the people that are just, you know, in general Mm anti-jump scare. Yeah, Yeah. we'll we'll definitely at some point get to Insidious, which I think is like a, it's, it is. Insidious movies. When I've only watched the first one (gasps) and I absolutely adore that movie. So it's really weird that I've never like jumped on the other ones. And I also love Lee Wanal. Like I think he is, really one of the best not only like a, a phenomenal filmmaker but he just strikes me like i remember i got to interview him once around the time that i think um well, i think it was mule, uh, mule was a movie he wrote like, like a crime drama that he wrote and he just strikes me as like a genuinely awesome dude that's easy to root for um yeah insidious is a master class on how to do jump scares right yeah. from start to finish it, and it really feels like I've said this about Frontiers being the best remake of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Insidious is like a pitch perfect remake of Poltergeist. It gets to be its own thing, okay. but it really carries I mean, it, the vibe it is, of that movie. Yeah, there's a lot of Poltergeist homage for sure. Mm-hmm. So I totally, yeah, I wouldn't have. Where it's its own thing. It. Yeah, that's a good point. 
And to your earlier point, it's another movie where the evil follows you. You you don't get to just move out of the house. Like it's like when you packed up the dishware, you also packed up the evil ghost. Lipstick space demon. And and how you brought up the um the the box earlier too, like kind of you know this recurring thing of this lingering evil. You know, I think it also like kind of puts a stamp too on just Ellison's you know flawed nature as a character too. On again, because if you kind of think about it, he you know moving into that house, he I guess he kind of skipped a step, and it's like if they wouldn't have moved back, you know, or if they would have moved somewhere else. I guess that technically would have ruined Bagul's chain, but because mm-hmm. of his actions, he of and then specifically going back to their old houses, how he, you know, pretty much sabotaged himself, his family, you know, into the fates That's, that they yeah. were in. So it's like again, that kind of just puts that ending stamp on throughout the entire movie. It's like Elson, you just kind of keep digging your hole deeper and <laughs> he deeper. Put himself in the story. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I, like it's funny. I'm sitting here chewing on what you said about that final scare about how it's so tense and then it's kind of spoiled by that. And I'm like, yeah, that's a really good point. I think mm-hmm. of like jump scares are a release of tension, right? So like mm-hmm. for me, um, I don't think just me, I think generally like, yeah, they scare you, but then it's over. Like you're not scared anymore after. Mm-hmm. And I think that's tends to be why I'm not super scared of jump scare movies because they're Mm -hmm. much more about like you're scared in the moment and then you go home and you feel fine yeah and there's always the tension building up to them and then you jump and then you're like okay it's over Mm -hmm. and usually like the sun starts shining and you know the scare is over and those movies don't last with you as we're sinister personally like really mess me right up so i literally a love letter maybe that's why i love that final scare so much is because i'm so tense that whole entire movie Mm -hmm. that maybe i just really needed that one to yeah. like release the tension for me if it ended the way you say which is way scarier i probably mm-hmm. would never be able to watch it again yeah. it gives you the permission to kind of go back out into the real world at that point yeah. and like and know it's only a movie yeah. and it's like i you know when we talk about sinister 2 my controversial take is like i don't think the last minute of that movie is actually real um because it kind of like negates like the victory in that film Mm. at the end of it i'm like and i i say this about a lot of horror movies where like the killer jumps out at the very end i'm like yeah that didn't really happen that's just like the marketing department trying to get you in for a sequel Um, i feel like it's like that tension breaking jump scare is the inverse of something like buried and saw which to me are like two of the scariest endings of all time Mm -hmm. i think saw is like the scariest ending to me of all time when um the uh when jigsaw closes the door on adam and adam is just screaming Mm -hmm. because he just knows oh my god that's a great scream face that like I hear it in my dreams. Like he's just screaming because he knows like he's fucked and he's going to die. And it's so much scarier than any like stabbing or any like shooting him or hacking his head off with an ax could ever possibly Mm be. So I feel like, yeah, you're so right to like Michael, like I don't think I've ever called you Michael. That's okay. But my mom's (laughs) like, that came in my mouth, but weird. Very official. Um, But yeah, it's, you're so right. And how it like is, it totally like, is it kills that tension but i feel like i probably love (laughs) i love movies that linger with you we just covered for my other show we did lake mungo and the end of lake mungo is another one where i think that's the closest thing in terms of like a vibe that i'll ever see on screen that compares to say house of leaves the the novel Mm -hmm. um because that's a movie again where 
um, it just kind of ends with these quiet photographs on screen of like Alice's specter. And it's so disturbing to me to think that like for all this time, like she is still like never going to be really seen, but she was there kind of all along. And that sits with me, you know, long after than say, you know, I love the Friday the 13th movies, but like, you know, Jason popping out of the lake for the umpteenth time after a while, you're like, that's really fun, but it doesn't like, it just kind of, it is what it is at that yeah, point. It's, the re- but, it's like that, like final release. And yeah. I want to stress, like, that's only me, in my opinion. Like if someone says, well, actually, like you said, like, here's why I love that jump scare at the end. Like, that's totally fine. Like you can enjoy, as long as you enjoy movies, like listeners, like enjoy them however you want to, you know, I I don't want to sound like, oh, if you like jump scares, you're a jerk. Uh, <laughs> no, I feel like we're agreeing on the, on what it does. It's just mm-hmm. that like, we're totally like, but we, we get yeah, different I'm like, things oh, we thank God. And you're like, it ruined the tension as we're like yeah. on the scary piece. Like I will say Sinister is one of maybe three movies that I look away from. Mm-hmm. um it to me is one of like the scariest movies ever like I can't watch it I was like stressed about watching it again for this episode mm-hmm. and I turned away for a lot of the movie which is not something I ever do like it you know there's just certain things that scare you in certain mm-hmm. ways um and I've said this before I think on I'll have to remember what episode but one of the scariest things to me is like the very focused um kills with like no glamour like I love a slasher because it's always like a really cool angle with like the mm-hmm. hand in the air and then coming down and blood splashing everywhere and the music's really exciting and then the inverse of that is something like um let the right one in where they're like holding the body very casually to get it to drip blood into the right bucket. Mm-hmm. Um, and that just like completely messes me up. So yeah, that's how I feel about the super eight videos in this one. Like they just totally fuck me up would and you, I can't watch them. Would you see how evil, I mean, how banal evil often is when it's not something that is like super over the top. And like you said, staged almost to a certain degree, like every, like you could, you know, pause it and frame it and throw it on the marketing poster but when it's like those really quiet and banal movements like let's make sure we position the body right so we get all the blood in like that are those are the things that can come off as like so unnerving but i think you hit you hit like for a perfect segue right there let's talk about those eight millimeter tapes because that really is the draw of this film so do we need a moment before we start? Or? Yeah, like I hate them, but I mean that as like the highest possible praise. Like I hate them. I never want to look at them again. I pushed play on the movie thinking like, oh my God, Lindsay, it's sinister. Like you are a fan of this movie. You can watch mm-hmm. this scene a hundred times. And that very first thing when they're like slow-mo being raised up into the tree, I like genuinely felt a lump in my throat like I was going to barf and just like picked up my phone and started browsing Twitter. Like I've already seen this. I don't need to watch it again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I was just like, nah. It's, it's fine it's like top five like cold opens for me mm. yeah this, this opening scene i remember i remember watching it in theaters whenever i went saw it in theaters i mean it was like silent for a sec because you know it's just like the music and then like i would just hear people just going oh 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 god oh god oh oh god and i saw like five people walk out five people <gasps> walked mm-hmm. out just from the opening scene of this movie they just said and nope didn't come back mm-hmm. they said nope and I love, like, I love a great cold open. It's just, we don't know mm-hmm. what we're watching right now. We don't know what it, but we're gonna find out, you know, but it also gives the the perfect taste of the film, you know, with introducing the sound design, like, and the score yeah. that we're going to hear, like, yeah. you know, throughout the film. 
I love that they actually shot those on Super 8, like, for yeah. segments and stuff, like, and I don't know, I think it's, like, also, like, this, it's, like, it's the best of both worlds between, like, kind of this just, like, you know, giving you this unfiltered you know violence but at the same time i mean bagul he's got he's got he's got some aesthetic to him he's Mm -hmm. got some flair you know that's how i try to rationalize you know myself quote unquote enjoying kills you know i i look i'm like a work of art you know and i'm like you know bagul he's got some style he's got some framing you know he knows what he's doing he's 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 got a vision for what he's doing he's got consistency you know i'm like and he gets it all in like one take he can do and it he's all. A, yeah. He's like, I, he's uh, the Clint Eastwood of killers. Yeah. I actually have them teed up if you don't remember um, all of them, but I'd be curious which one is each of your favorite sure. or whether you want to say which one's the scariest or, mm-hmm. you know, so, pick one and sing its praises. I know for me, like that first one is like to your point, Devon, it is like an absolute statement. Like if you want to start a movie out on a high note and say like, this is the purpose of this movie is to freak the audience the fuck out. I don't think there's like anything they could have done, even though there are kills later on in the movie that I think like get me more startled. There's something about the framing of this one. And just like, I think what it does it for me is watching the legs kick and then mm-hmm. they, and I think because you can't see their faces either, oh, they're almost like they're not real people at that point. Um, and having that on eight millimeter that adds like this level of like veracity to it that I think if it was mm-hmm. like just like digital DV or if it wasn't, you know, what I love about this movie, it's a movie about finding footage that's not a found footage movie and how we kind of interact. And especially as we get into this era of like, deep fakes and almost anything can be manipulated. Um, Seeing it in this like really analog way just really adds to that level of unease that I get. Um, So I will let, because I just kind of said a mouthful there, why don't you folks go first? What are the, what are the moments? What are the eight millimeter sections that really stuck with you both? I mean, I think lawn care is the universal, probably mm-hmm. most scariest one. Um, Cause I mean that again, the sound design, like the, the, the way that they mixed like the sounds of the lawnmower and then the scream and like everything into that scene mm-hmm. and just the timing of it is just like, so like, it's so textbook, like so good. Um, but I mean, really all of them are just like so disturbing. Like mm-hmm. one that I just like that people don't really talk about as much, but like to me is one of the like uh, worst ones is um, the one where they pull them into the pool. Yeah. So you see them, they're on these pool chairs with cinder blocks attached to them. So they're getting pulled in and just sunk to the bottom. You're just so because drowning, I think, is one of the like worst ways to die. Like it just sounds awful like you know and it's it takes a while you know and it's just like the way that they did it with you know pulling the laundry because I remember like seeing the setup I'm like okay what's going on here like because I I also like how they're cut like how it's like you see you see the scene of the crime of like Mm -hmm. you know the family just enjoying themselves and then it cuts to the exact same location when the kill's actually happening so it's like I see the pool party I'm like okay okay there's a pool how what, how's this kill gonna go down and then you like then you see it set up and you're like oh, oh oh the cinder block oh no and then it's like that that one's like really bad when you think about it mm-hmm. yeah you beat me to it um I was gonna say 
Yeah, the exact same thing. I think lawn work is the one people usually mention. And before I watched the movie, people were like, oh, be careful with the lawnmower part. But back on our like jump scare conversation, it actually scares me the least because of that release. And it's almost like, oh, okay, this one's the more fun one. As where, yeah, pool party is the one that scares me the most. The dangling legs, of course, in the, uh, I think, oh God, it's called something gross. I don't even want to say it because I'm just so scared of that one. Um, that one's really scary. But the pool party gets me because it's slow. Mm-hmm. And it's that, again, just like I was saying about like lining up the body to drain the blood. It's that slow push of the chairs into the water that just makes my whole body like, oh no. Yeah. Like just, I hate it. But yeah, everything that you said, basically. (laughs) What really got me on this one was the one where the family is, they're just kind of like tied up and they're duct taped down Mm -hmm. and um, their throats are slit, um, which is probably the most basic of any of them. But what really got me on this one was the fact that like the family dog was like trying to protect them. Like you could see them positioned in between. Like the dog, we have like a very similar like Chihuahua little mini pin mix and like, when you know at the end that like it's like a family annihilator that it's one of the children and like the yes. family pet is trying, trying to protect is bet and it's such a tiny thing it can't do anything mm-hmm. it's trying to protect it's probably also very confused because it's like why is this member of our pack trying to hurt the other members of the oh, pack like sucks. that makes it such a scary and then you see that last one where she goes into her like siblings bedroom and he has, and you have to, like, Ellison looks away from the screen and you see it occur like in the reflection of his glasses at that mm-hmm. point. There's something that's just so disturbing about that. And the other th- one, you don't see it. Um, when Ashley kills her family at the end of the movie, mm-hmm. she has like the little piece of art that she's made. And it shows like mom, dad, her brother, and they're cut into pieces. So she didn't just kill them, but she like trisected them. Like she cut off their heads and then she cut off their torsos. Because you see that in her drawing and like that's the, so that to me was even creepier because to have like be in that mindset where you are going to, because she wasn't portrayed as a troubled child. Like she's a pretty bright, sunny kid. Like her parents love her. Um, she obviously loves them. And then to go into the, to think of like what would go into that mindset and to see it artistically portrayed like that in a way that only a little kid could. Um, it's just so disturbing. Yeah. yeah. Shout out to the storyboards that all the kids have for all the drawings. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I do think that's um, really an interesting mm-hmm. one. I think it's like kind of a misdirect because you, you kind of think it's going to be maybe the sun is going to have something more yes. because mm-hmm. he has the night terrors and we have that weird scene, you know, when he has mm-hmm. the night terror. So I think it's like kind of a, the, the misdirect there. You think he's going to be the one that's going to be like kind of involved with the ghostly activities. And then when it turns out to be the daughter, then it's like, mm-hmm. you know, kind of a, a kind of a turn. But uh, just like how you mentioned though, like once you like at the end get and realize that's the kids doing these, it kind of puts like, recontextualizes them and then like you said like the mm-hmm. the the throat slit one kind of is like the the most messed up one when you kind of think about it because it's like that's a child just doing something so cold and casual yeah and as casual as doing that mm-hmm. and that and that crime um in the movie is depicted in st louis which is where i'm from so mm-hmm. oh look at that <laughs> was yeah. there 
do we know like was there any sort of like reason for the way the crimes traveled like was there a reason why each spot was chosen i don't know i didn't think there was like if it was just like, like oh, where they happened to move Oh, okay. where the market was hot. Yeah, sure. You know, Bagul, he was he had the tabs on where the market mm-hmm. was going to be. That's where that's where he was right. at. He was a hot real estate agent. He's got a great deal for people. Um, one of the things I, I do appreciate about this movie, it's one of the few that really and I think there are a couple Blumhouse because one of the things about like Insidious that has that rung a little bit false to me is like the family moves into this like gorgeous new home on like dad is the only one working. He's a public school teacher. And then they can immediately up and like move into a new home. Like, I'm sorry, like that doesn't typically happen. Um, and like that's me just being like an adult and reading too much into things. But what I like about this movie is it really kind of taps into there was a real like economic anxiety around this time. And it's funny, like I just read before we started, there was an article on Slate, um, you know, comparing the early days of the Obama industry to like the first 100 days of FDR's um, presidency where he did a bank holiday. So persons couldn't pull all their money out of the bank uh, where, you know, there was a public works jobs that were created versus like the 2008 to 2010 where there was like this steady incursion of like economic growth. But even by 2010, we're still at 10% unemployment. And like the tax cut they did was a very gradual one that was in your paycheck rather than a big announcement. So it really hurt them in the midterms because people didn't realize, hey, things are better. Um, There's a real talk around like, we cannot lower the price of our other house any more than we can and not lose our shirts on it. Like we're gonna barely break even as it is. Um, Mm -hmm. And as someone that had bought their first condo right around this time, and then immediately saw the housing market crash and go like, oh my God, it's worth $100,000 less six months after we bought it and freaking out a little bit, like that really hit home. The fact that like he does have some economic privilege where he could use his clout as a best-selling author to probably do like the lecture circuit and write textbooks, but his own fragile ego. And we see like his masculinity really gets in the way of him demeaning himself to do this thing where he could like write textbooks, make a really good living on it, but he wouldn't get the accolades at that point. Like, I don't think anyone people can tell me if they're wrong like there's not award shows for academic textbooks right there's not like mm. they usually don't get on they usually don't get on letterman like oh my god like the sixth revision of calculus 405 <laughs> is just like you gotta read it to believe it um, yeah, maybe i would suffer through that gig i'll tell you about right now right a lot of us would you know like <laughs> well, a lot of us would. His big but he did his big numbers yeah with the mm-hmm. with the with the work that he was doing mm-hmm. you know and 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 you and you see that too whenever they do move back into the other house and you're mm-hmm. like oh my god like you know the size difference mm-hmm. and like you know yeah. the quality difference like when you see like where they step down to into moving into that other house which I you want know to live they in that a, library yeah and which they mm-hmm. got a good deal on you know the house that mm-hmm. they moved into because right. of the murder happening so it's like obviously like you know their finance their financial situation you know shifted mm-hmm. big time for them to, mm-hmm. to you know and so them showing that mm-hmm. you know was interesting 
because Tracy, I mean, Tracy questions the reasons why they move into that particular house. But she thinks like at worst, like we moved into it because it's like, it's kind of near the um, murder scene. Like, please don't tell me it's that. Like you get the feeling from her that she realizes like they move into that home because like, that's the best they could do at that moment, you know, like, and it is, and it's a nice little house. Like, I mean, it's, I, I love exposed brick. So I like, they, I thought it's a pretty neat little house. Um, but like, it's definitely their library would have like fit the whole house in, uh, yeah. in the house they moved back in. I mean, he says like, you know, cause I wouldn't be able to afford the house, but for, and then they move into this house and I love the bit cause it's so like, Oh, really? Um, when she's like, don't tell me we moved two doors down from the crime scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. He's I like, promise. no, we didn't. Mm-hmm. And then later he's like, we moved into the crime scene. Right. He's like, you lied. Or she's like, you lied. And he's like, no, I said that we didn't move. To... And she's like, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah that's <laughs> the biggest. That is... That's the biggest Ellison you shit mm-hmm. in this entire movie. That like, is. Oh, I, didn't, I said we didn't move two houses down cool. from where it happened. Oh, like, yeah. oh, that is the best case of well, actually, that I think I've ever seen. <laughs> it's just so like, uh, I feel like that was the thing. Yeah. Anyway, I love that. I love that mm-hmm. bit. And then he's like, "Well, technically, it happened in the backyard." And she's like, "Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so great. I love that whole bit. Mm-hmm. So great." Oh, uh, I. I I tend to agree with that. I definitely tend to agree. Um, what do we think of the of this movie kind of like predating this real obsession there is with true crime as an entertainment genre? I know I think this is like a, maybe a year or two ahead of uh, Sarah Koning and the first season of Serial, which mm-hmm. was like, oh my God, like podcasts can get millions, like a a kajillion downloads Mm -hmm. um, where, you know, you have like with Netflix, you have like Making a Murderer and the Tiger King and like revived, um, re-releasing the staircase with like added episodes Mm -hmm. to it. And I think last year it was um, Don't Fuck With Cats, I think was the name of it. Yeah, they brought back the jinx. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I think true crime has been like pretty popular for a really long time, but there were certainly a boom, like you said, with Sarah, with the uh, serial. And then obviously the true crime at home docs on Netflix absolutely blew it up. Like I think after making a murderer, all of a sudden everyone wanted to have their true crime show. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And this definitely does kind of start there. I always think of it really close to, um, um, but yeah, this kind of writing the book that helped solve the case. I know I kind of glibly talked about Gail Weathers, but it reminds me the most of uh, Michelle McNamara's book, I'll Be Gone in the Dark, where uh, she ended up assisting in the ultimate catch of the Golden State Killer. So it was a true crime book. It was published posthumously, um, but a lot of her work assisted with the ultimate capture of this like notorious missing serial killer. So I always kind of think of that a lot more than I would think of like making a murderer per se mm-hmm. in something like this it's not so much the like trial like a lot of the true crime docs that we watch are usually just like these are the facts and the trial is over and you know make something new they don't usually affect that much change like we thought that they did um with making a murderer but not really um it's much more like a, a look back as where the, a lot of the true crime books are are much more about the investigation which I think mm-hmm. is really neat 
I mean, maybe that's kind of a generalization, but that's kind of how I viewed it. Yeah. I mean, so I have a, I have a complicated relationship, I guess, with true crime or mm. feelings towards it. And it's basically like, you know, the, the idea that they grapple with in this is, you know, that's my whole thing is like, I don't watch those documentaries or series or like, because it's what, how, what am I supposed to be feeling about this? Am I supposed to be entertained by this? Am I supposed, or am I supposed to be learning and being informative? I feel like, you know, the different things are made with different intentions, you know? Mm -hmm. So I like that that's like specifically the idea that they're grappling with here is like, you know, is he doing it because he wants to help, you know, for the justice or is he doing it for the fame or to entertain people, you know, cause that's what the fame is. He's, if he's selling his book out, that means it's entertaining people. So that's mm -hmm. pretty much like my whole plight with like watching anything true crime related. Cause I'm just like, it doesn't make me feel as good you know if i'm watching it with like the fascination of ooh, this person in real life was so sadistic and was doing these real things and like i i don't want to be intrigued by that yeah. you know that's why i like to stick in the fiction world you know and in, in all the fake stuff to where i can actually have fun but mm -hmm. so yeah mind. yeah oh go, go ahead. ahead Lindsay. oh i was gonna say you really remind me of this conversation i had i did this job for a while uh it's a very common thing that lawyers do between gigs where you're basically like doing grunt work for other lawyers at an hourly rate. Um, and a lot of us share space. So you're kind of sitting in a room just doing like pretty mindless work all day. So we'll all of us listen to podcasts. And it was at that time where everyone's listening to true crime podcasts. And I remember sitting beside my friend, Sarah, and like, you know, we're all lawyers. So of course, you know, things that talk about the legal system and its failings are really, really interesting to us. Mm -hmm. So I mean, maybe to everybody, I guess to everybody, true crime is really popular. I just mean like for a lot of us, our perspective is that, and we kind of have these moments sometimes where we're like, oh, when you have that like certain reaction, you're like, did I react wrong to that? And I remember there's a specific moment. There was, it was me and my friend, Sarah, we were sitting across from this other guy who I won't name. And we were all listening to the same podcast. And um, I was talking to her and I was like, oh my God, you know, that was nuts. What a terrible story, blah, blah, blah. And then he kind of shouted over his headphones like, yeah, did you guys get to the part where this happened? Like, it was crazy. And we had this moment of like, we're not listening to the same thing as you. And it was mm. like, we're all listening to the same thing, but you're like, oh my God, what a wild twist when that like mm. little girl like got murdered, that little adopted child got like murdered by her parents as well, we're like, what a failing of the investigation and what like, and so not to say that because mm -hmm. we were having this like legal analyst reaction that we're any better than him or smarter, or, you know, consuming things. Like, I'm not trying to like make some like I'm better than this guy thing, but like I very much see your point where you have those moments of like, oh yeah, this is gross. Like we're yeah. having a casual conversation about a really messed up thing. And like, mm -hmm. but we like recalled that moment, like he said that and the two of us were like, part of our reaction was like, oh, we're listening to this differently than you. But part of our reaction was like, oh, we're all listening to this for entertainment, yeah. huh? Like this kind of sucks. So I very much see your point there. And I do also have kind of complicated feelings about it. And I think it's a lot of the way we talk about it and things like that. So yeah, I don't disagree with you. There's also, definitely, yeah. there's definitely something odd, like to your point about, like, again, everybody gets something a little bit different out of it and using as a form of, of entertainment, why we listen to it. But mm -hmm. it's, there's something a little bit disquieting about not only like going through, say, like the grisly details of like family annihilators or serial killers, or um, just like 
persons that have like committed these tremendous atrocities, but also like, you know, the failings of our justice system and how it mm -hmm. often um, benefits persons of wealth, benefits persons that, you know, have a certain skin color, you know, and benefits like uh, others. Of, and then you see others that are like thrown in jail for like the most minor of offenses overall. There's something really disquieting about like hearing that as a form of entertainment. And then it's like, and now we're going to cut to an ad about like Boomba socks, the most comfortable socks you could ever get. And like, you know, the other thing that goes great with a nice warm pair of socks is like, here's like a mattress, like get 20% off this mattress when you mention our podcast. Hey listeners, Mike here. I just want to cut into the show with what I promise will be a brief pitch for our Patreon account. And I got musical cues and everything to not run past. If you love what we do and what we bring each week in terms of analysis, humor, criticism, insight, charm, good looks, really the complete package, we hope you consider supporting us by becoming a Patreon of our pod. Your contributions allow us to build what we've done for nearly 100 episodes now by paying for our server's hosts, by purchasing better recording and editing equipment, and by giving us the funds we need to buy the movies, the books, the documentaries, and other research materials we use to bring each episode to life. Our weekly show is always going to be free, and we know that times are tight for everyone right now. We also know there's a number of phenomenal podcasts deserving of your support. That's why, as well as our gratitude, we offer bonus content to all levels of patrons, starting at just two bucks. Every month, we deliver a complete bonus episode on a movie we might not otherwise cover, and all of our patrons get access to our exclusive Slack channel where we talk horror, music, any other types of movies. Really, it's a cool little community with our patrons right now that are all just awesome people. With 2021 right around the corner, I got some more ideas up my sleeve on how to give everybody some more content and some more swag. So please help keep the show strong by heading to patreon.com slash pod and the pendulum and become a supporter today. And now back to the show. And if you're a Patreon, uh, we will, all the three of us, be talking about our what we're watching this month. And uh, I'm sure we'll have some really juicy tidbits. Excellent. Excellent. Um, but they're, you know, and I know like we get, like what happens with these shows is they become an obsession. I mean, think about, there is was something nice at the first part of quarantine of like watching something as fucked up as Tiger King. And having like millions of people experience that because like, what else are you going to do? Like it was a very scary time. It was nice to have a distraction mm. for a few days, but at the same time, you think about how so many of these like true crime shows, they kind of want to mirror like the Joseph Conrad's quest for the hero, like the hero's journey. And because of that, they set up really clear heroes and villains, even in cases where like a clear cut villain doesn't exist so you have like carol baskin who is like one of the characters in tiger king really being like chased down and like hunted for months with people saying like oh she obviously killed her husband like 
what do you mean she fucking obviously killed her husband? Like, where did you get your um, investigative degree from? And like, what evidence are you presenting aside from like footage that, you know, has been manipulated with a point of view because there's really no such thing as a completely objective point of view, even in documentaries. Um, yeah. I, I know there was a one, it was the one with Errol Flynn. Um, they just redid, it was on FX that had come out recently. Um, and I can't remember it, but it basically, they manipulated his final interview to make it sound like he had changed his mind and disagreed with like his original verdict, which is probably that the person who's in prison for this is most likely innocent. And he'd come out after, he's like, this interview was clearly manipulated. It's not what I'm saying, you know, it's, so, yeah. Um, I mean, I guess that kind of ties back into like, does that make uh, Ethan Hawke's character whose name you've said a hundred times and I still can't remember. Ellison? Uh, mm-hmm. Ellison. Does Ellison it make him contemptible? And I guess that's it. Like I, you know, again, it's very much like the first one was the one where he assisted in something. And then the other two were entertainment value and messed with people's lives, which I guess we can kind of apply that to what we've just been talking about. And then I guess, you know, again, going back to him watching those uh, tapes of himself on late night talk shows, I think we're supposed to really think of him as contemptible. My favorite, I know I've already said this is my favorite part, but my favorite like acting choice in the entire movie is when Ethan Hawke does that really shitty laugh that makes him look like a total a-hole. So they're like, they ask him something like, um, you know, are you doing it for the fame? And he like makes some joke to suggest that he doesn't, but does this like really smug laugh that you just want to like slap Mm -hmm. out of him. And it's kind of like, yeah, you're some like tree crime entertainment douchebag who's here for the cash. And like, that's a really fun, I love that. Like only Ethan Hawke could sell that kind of a Mm -hmm. laugh. Like it's so good. And even though he's like one of the most warm, likable sweater wearing dads you've ever seen, um, he does that laugh and you're like, gag, he's the worst. He really wears that sweater too. He He wears the hell out of a cable knit cardigan, I'll tell you. And the... It, the sweater is like a supporting character. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, let's give it its due credit here. Mm-hmm. The sweater's doing a lot of work in this movie. It's a very deliberate choice, too. It's a very deliberate, like, that the Bennington College, that and the Bennington College t-shirt he wears, mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. immediately, like, without him having to say a word, like, completely paints, like, an extremely accurate picture of, like, who this dude is. And I love that. I think my favorite acting choice he makes, he... There's a moment when Hawk, he kind of like almost gets his cues from like Ray Liotta at the end of Goodfellas when Mm -hmm. Liotta is talking about how like, you know, I used to have it all and now I'm, you know, I'm a schnook. I went out to get like pasta with gravy and I came back with like egg noodles and ketchup. And when he's like, when, when Ellison and Tracy are having their blowout argument, he is like talking about how if he were to just go and write textbooks, it would literally kill him. That it would absolutely suck like his, the life out of him. Um, and he's like screaming about how he would be a nobody. And it just like reminded me of Leota in Goodfellas when more specifically when he's when Henry's yelling at Karen that like the cocaine she flushed away was like the last bit of money he had. That's everything we had, Karen, you know? When he paints um, the wall. Um... Yeah. Like if you watch those two scenes back to back, like you can mm. it almost feel like he's making some deliberate choices there. Huh. Okay. Yeah. All I'd right. say my my favorite acting choice. Um it, it kind of ties into the 
the uh, whole noir vibes that we have going on. I love a good contemporary noir and they, I think they work a lot of those elements in, you know, with the ever present score with, um, you know, him not changing out of that sweater kind of, you know, indicating <laughs> like, you know, one, he's been wearing this thing for days. He's so sucked in, you know, but it's also like, kind of like his like superhero costume mm-hmm. in a way, you know, but, um, and then the, the alcoholism, you can't have a good, uh, investigative writer without a lot of whiskey whiskey mm-hmm. specifically it's specifically and whiskey the, yeah. and the way that they he's so specific and the ice cubes and the way and then you start notice that he's drinking it without ice cubes mm-hmm. like at, at the beginning he's oh, drinking with yeah. ice then he's drinking it without ice cubes then he's drinking more of it and then um i forget which tape he was watching but there's like one he's like you know, he's getting nervous and he's like, takes a pull and he's drinking. And then he like gets to a part in the, in the tape and then he goes to take a drink and there's like nothing left. And he like, right. doesn't know, just like keeps doing it. And they like, looks down, he's like, Oh, that's empty. And they like sets it back down. And then it's like, up oh, his drinking habits right back in mm-hmm. it. Cause you can tell uh, he probably, um, you know, either quit or slowed down significantly, but now he's right back in it. Cause of all the whiskey he's drinking. And I love that deputy. So-and-so points it out as well. Yeah, deputy so and so, guys. We'll definitely get to him. I know we have a question about him, so mm-hmm. we're gonna hold off. We're gonna try something new here. We're gonna hold off to the Q and A portion to talk about deputy so and so, the low key MVP, I think, of this movie. Uh, so, spoiler alert on our thoughts on deputy so and so. The last thing I have is I love, and I've talked about this before, is how the paranoia really builds in this movie and how you start, it's almost like Charlie in it's always sunny where you see like Charlie day <laughs> in front of the board with all these weird connections. Like you see going, but I was like, yes, Charlie, let's talk about him. Sorry, yes. go on, you go see um, all of these connections being made and it ties in Carol, like there. Carol, Carol. <laughs> um, you basically like if the we're as a country becoming a place where like conspiracy theories are becoming more and more present and more and more acceptable like things that would get people like laughed out of their local dunkin donuts and starbucks <laughs> you are now able to wage like successful congressional campaigns around them mm. it's very scary oh, yeah, so less yeah so in 2009 psychology today published a survey saying that roughly about 42% of all Americans believe the government is covering something about up about the presence of UFOs. And 69% believe that JFK was killed by like a secret conspiracy that plotted his assassination. Now, like that particular one, there are a number of different conspiracies that work into it. Like, was it the mob? Was it Lyndon Johnson? Was it the CIA? Like, they just think that something is fishy about the assassination there. Um, And what's funny is like the way conspiracy theorists tend to think kind of mirror the way Ellison thinks in this movie. And I don't know if that was like deliberate on the part of like Erickson and Cargo, but it was really smart. So your conspiracy theorists tend to have like this really inflated view of themselves in their own abilities. Um, And often like the evidence doesn't bear it out. So you could say with like Kentucky blood, Ellison proved himself to be like a talented writer, but you might say he was more lucky that he was good based on like the, um, how poorly his future work was received at that point. Um, 
and like that over the top nature that they often have, like when Ellison grandstands in front of the sheriff, that kind of stems from this feeling like you're powerless. Like all of these things that are going on around you are somehow out of your control. And this like ways that you're connecting the dot, these dots to events that seemingly don't have any connection. It's your way of trying to make sense of the world around you. Um, from this article, like this quote that jumped out was conspiracy theorists exist on a spectrum of like mild suspicion, like, eh, you know, I think maybe sometimes my neighbor watches me shower uh, to like full on paranoia. Like, I think my neighbor watches me shower and then um, he is um, putting LSD in my tap water and then sending my thoughts to the government. Um, we see that with Ellison a little bit. Um, he like feels the cops are like really too quick to cut bait on the cases because they don't, they either can't do something or they're covering it up. And he has this insistence that he always knows better than the cops, even when like the facts don't really back him up. And he makes all of these like faulty logic and improper conclusions. And you see it at the end when deputy so-and-so is like, here's this really obvious thing that you really missed uh, mm -hmm. because he's like so wrapped up in the minutiae. So I found like that, way his brain was working and going to full-on paranoia almost schizophrenia was like one of the more fascinating things about this movie mm. yeah. yeah i mean his his low-tier investigative skills they already start with like even diminishes like as the film goes because like as he's like kind of watching too like you notice the first time he's watching the tapes he's like you know taking notes and he's like kind of watching intently and then you know he has this you know board with all the things on it but it's like Again, he he's doing all these things, mm -hmm. but yet he still learns absolutely yeah. nothing. And he ignores, no. the, ignores just the one big thing ahead of him. So it's yeah. just like, I, I think it's just like, he's really, I think that's just like kind of what it's trying yeah. to get. is like, he really isn't like a good investigator whatsoever. Mm -hmm. He is just a good writer, but he's still trying to, you know, convince himself because he even, you know, once he starts learning more about like what's actually going on and, Bugul's background and stuff he still doesn't tell you know deputy so-and-so he doesn't mm -hmm. mention to the professor like the things that are actually happening mm -hmm. he's still speaking in hypotheticals with the professor like he goes what kind of book are you writing and he's like that's not even what i'm getting at anymore you right. know so it's like he still had the opportunity there to be like hey someone that knows a lot about what's going on and if I tell them this is actually happening, maybe I'll get some more answers, but he still doesn't tell them what's actually happening because mm -hmm. he still wants to, what, banish Bagul himself and then write that into the book as well, yeah. you know? <laughs> There's this fear that if he shares the information, he will have to share the eventual credit at that yeah. point when the case is cracked. And if he has to share the credit, then he's not as like special or as intelligent as he believes himself to be and as he needs others to think that he is. Yeah, it's like that combined with that when he ultimately like I think we're supposed to see him lose himself to the story. Like mm -hmm. he ends up so much losing himself to the story and becoming part of the story that he ends up getting killed by the story's killer. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a lot of that there with like he loses himself to the story so much that when he starts to get that last call about the information about Bagul and it's like, you know, what kind of story are you writing? At that point, he's scared that Bagul is out to get him. He's not asking for his book anymore. Like at mm -hmm. that point, he's like, because I need to know for me because Bagul's in my life. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's like where it kind of starts. So yeah, it starts as the like, I'm not sharing my credit with you. And then ultimately he's like peppering with questions and doing the most investigation he's done 
thus mm-hmm. far because he's like, oh God, I need to save myself mm-hmm. and my family. Yeah. By the way, like this family is the heaviest sleepers of anyone <laughs> because like he's like screaming bloody murder in the house. He's falling off of ladders, like 50 like boxes of tapes and reels and like a projector are falling from the attic and everybody is just like totally knocked out. Yeah, you only see his wife like during daytime. Yeah, it's a vampire. That machine, that old Super 8 like projector has to be loud itself too. Oh yeah. Because it's like so old and yeah, like all the Mm -hmm. re-taping he's doing. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I also I love the moments when the kids are like just out of his peripheral vision. Um, yeah. And I think what I love about that as a choice is like if I feel like if he were to turn his head a fraction of a moment sooner that he would see them like he can feel them. Mm-hmm. But I think that like if he was a little bit more aware, he would see them. Do you agree with that? Or do you think that like they would not? have revealed themselves like ever show themselves it's almost like they're so far ahead of him like they're such a step Mm -hmm. ahead of him that they kind of know that he's not going to see them does Mm -hmm. that make sense like it's almost like they're they're like living enough ahead of him that he they know when he's going to turn his head does that Mm -hmm. make any sense yeah it does that's what i always took it as i thought they were just yeah they're they're just having a goof with them yeah Mm -hmm. they know exactly what's up yeah and it's so well done, like the way that it's like pitch black. Uh, there's like no light whatsoever in those scenes. And mm-hmm. the way they move where they're not quite moving at full speed is just, it's really wonderfully done. The boogity man. The um... boogity man. All right. Do we want to move on to our Q&A? Like the, yeah, I got a few comments? questions. All yeah. Right. Um, yeah. So thanks for uh, replying to my tweet uh, about questions. We'll probably post sometimes on Facebook, on the Pot and Pendulum Twitter, or on our personal Twitter. So look out for that. Um, so I got a few fun ones that I'm excited. So first one we've got from JD. Uh, I don't know if it's Gravat or Gravati. I'm sorry. At JD, G-R-A-V-A-T-E. We can ask him next week when he guests with us on Oh my God. So sorry that I don't know how to pronounce your name, but I will know it in a week. Uh, so JD asks, is this the best use of the easily found obscure expert trope, which I'm sure uh, he is chatting about our good friend, Vincent. Um, so take it away, boys. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll say I like, I'll say I like this trope better than um, goes to the library, uses random search engine trope. I'll take mm-hmm. this instead. At least we do get a new character. We get a perform a little bit of a performance. Yeah. So I'll take this all day over a library research scene, even though neither one yeah. is really my favorite. <laughs> as, as someone that's a big fan of like Rupert Giles and the Buffy the Vampire Slayer TV mm-hmm. show, I would say that I do appreciate like the expert more than like I think like big my conspiracy theory is like big microfiche is like sending hollywood like reams of money in order to stay relevant because no one ever uses microfiche anymore except in like horror movies at this point when they're doing research so um i would say yeah i I would plus you know it's vincent d'onofrio who doesn't want to see him yeah you know it's always a good time i just and again i do love that he's like i'll be in your movie but again i can't be bothered to leave my study yeah i'll do it from home over zoom yeah um yeah Predates hosts by like 10 years. Uh, Yeah, by a bit. 
Um, yeah, definitely. Like it's totally an exposition dump, like we said. Um, but I think he delivers it really well. It's fun. It's funny that they found a guy who like can really quickly find information on Bagul. Uh, I really like in those moments when someone like brings him a sandwich. It's like it's definitely supposed to be played as some like casual, real, not just a movie where everything's perfect moment, but it's also mm-hmm. so weird that there's just someone who like who is it? Is it supposed to be his wife? Is it his housekeeper who just like shows up with a sandwich? Um I almost wonder if like they didn't yeah. know he was actually doing a movie at that time. <laughs> Literally his wife being like, Hey, uh, are you gonna eat lunch or <laughs> Yep. I need yeah. a release form from her, please. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Is my she wife, in the union? Or, um... <laughs> she did that today. It was like helping a kid out during lunch today, uh, you know, doing like my school counseling thing. And she came over with like a little cheese plate with crackers with this really nice like pickle thing. Oh, very nice. So it was very cool. There you go. And You're just like our go- like, old good buddy Vinny. And they were like, who's that? I'm like, that's my kept lady. So, Oh, my. Oh, my. Oh, my. So, my. Um, let's see. I'm going to go, uh, of course, our favorite from Viva Las, Viva La Vega, uh, who is named Vegas on Twitter. Um, does this movie work if deputy so-and-so is cast differently and why not? Um, so I'm excited about this one because mm-hmm. obviously we love deputy so-and-so played really well by our good friend, uh, James Ran- Ranson or Ransone? I don't know how he. Pr- I'm I really. I'm slaying it with the I think name. It's Ransone. Okay, just crushing name Smith. pronunciations today. I think it's actually Smith. Let's call him this James. Our good buddy James. Um, mm-hmm. he does a great job. Him coming back in Sinister Two is amazing. I love the character of Deputy So and So. I love the gag of him being named Deputy So and So. Um. He's so funny and good. Like they also work together. Him and Ethan Hawke also were in uh, in the Valley of Violence together. They've got like a really fun chemistry. And what I like about him is he's like, he's obviously he's the Dewey, but he's the doofy. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like he's the dummy, but actually really smart cop. Yeah. Um, which I think is really fun. Like he's supposed to be kind of like a silly schoolboy or mm-hmm. you know, nerd boy who just wants to be a part of the gang. And then he's actually like very important and useful. Yeah. Um and yeah, I think that he he brings a lot to it. I love that character. <laughs> like, nothing. yeah, I, I I've never I've never seen a supporting character like him before because it's like he it's a good combination of like him being a good bit character of like yeah, his name is Debbie so and so and you know and but at the same time like just the idea that's like okay, it's an officer who's a fan who he is the person that like you know is doing the right thing and like you know wants to help for the right reasons not because he wants you know um you know he just wants a an acknowledgement Acknowledgement. in the the page that's all he wants Mm -hmm. so it's like um but his performance is really great because if if he didn't like just like hit those line deliveries like ever so perfectly it just like wouldn't work and he he would be like you know the character that you point out as weakness usually um, so yeah, he brought, he brought a great, you know, performance to it. And, and he is a character that I was like, oh man, like I want to care. I want a movie about this guy now. And then I got it and I never watched it. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, maybe you will after this. I, I need to, I need to, I'm, I'm going to watch Sinister 2 this week. Yeah, you're gonna I think you should. I, it's, it's worth a watch. It's definitely, I don't think it's as, it's not as well received as this one is, but it's a pretty fun follow-up. Yeah, I, think I I think they make a really smart choice with deputy so-and-so in that they could have easily, like you said, Lindsay made him like kind of a goofball character 
that just like if he gets it right, he just stumbles upon it accidentally. But I think one of the really nice things about this character is like he proves himself to be really astute and he proves himself also to be very perceptive. Um, I love the moment, like the little one-on-one that him and Ellison have with one another, where he's like, I think you've moved into a home that has like a really bad energy to it that you have like kind of like wrapped yourself up in this. Like you're spending all hours working on the story. You have found things that are like way more messed up than you anticipated them to be. And oh, by the way, every time I come over here, um, I notice that there's always a whiskey bottle around. And like Ellison is never drunk around him. He's never like not in control of his faculties, but like this, the deputy is picking up on little things here and there and he's putting connections together. And what I love is then that movie, that moment is undercut. He's when Allison's like, so you don't really believe in any, he's like, oh, fuck no, I wouldn't move here in a million years. Mm-hmm. It's such a great, like, to your point, Lindsay, about jump scares, how like you get that release attention, you get that laugh release. And that mm-hmm. I really appreciate. Like, all right, that's really well done, particularly because like Ransone's delivery is like perfect in that moment, just wonderful. So yeah. I love this character. Could it work any better? I mean, maybe if it was like Miles Fisher. In the I role? mean, everyone would be better. <laughs> no? um, yeah, maybe Miles um, Fisher. But like, it's so, I don't know. Like, I think that like, this is a, a um, this is a moment of like spot on, like really not only perfect casting, but like just a wonderful performance as well. Yeah. And, and, a, and a great out of context line is snakes don't have feet. And the way he and the way he delivers it too. He's so <laughs> earnest that whole bit. He's so earnestly like, yeah, probably squirrels. He's like snakes don't have feet. And then he says he saw something else. He's like, I saw something like ants yeah. or something like that. Uh, it was a scorpion. He's like, he's like, oh, well, I yeah. did see a scorpion. He's like, well, scorpions have feet, but not like a squirrel would. So like, you know, you wouldn't hear it like you would. <laughs> so earnest, and it's so like classic. The like cop investigating something supernatural, where he's like. Probably squirrels. Um, so good. So <laughs> earnest. Um, have, our next. Oh, oh, sorry. Go ahead. I have one. I have one from uh, lovely Linda at pure uh, seepkin at Twitter. Uh, okay. Wouldn't Abbath have been a better choice to play the Bagul? So Abbath is a uh, Norwegian death metal guitarist from the band <laughs> Mortal. Um, oh. I am looking at the picture right now and. I'm going to say, yeah, I'm going to say that absolutely it is a dude's dressed up in corpse paint. Um, This gif is definitely giving me, it's creeping me out a little bit right now. So he looks like he could really mess some shit up. So, oh yeah, I see. I mean, I get the, yeah, I see the comparison. I see what's, what's going on. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. What's going on there? Yeah. We will allow first, Abbott or Bagul. Yeah. Shout out to Nick King, though, the actor that plays Bagul. I, I, I really want to be a like a creature performer in a, in a horror movie. That's like a goal of mine at some point. So um, I, I think he uh, has a he has a nice presence for mm-hmm. for what he for what little he's asked to do. Achievable. I was actually just discussing today that um, one of my favorite podcasters, Stuart Wellington, is voicing a monster character in Psycho Gorman. That was called. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, of the Flop House, which I think is is one of my favorite podcasts. Um, yeah. So oh, there you go. Funny. You could go from podcaster to creature artist. Mm-hmm. It's a niche market. I, <laughs> I I can work. I can work my way in. Stu can do it. 
the dude from um, last podcast of the left had a supporting role in After Midnight. Oh, wonder what? Which is one of my favorite movies of last year. So there you go. There you go. Do it. All right. Where's our next question? Uh, Is this to me now? Yes. I have a silly one. Well, I shouldn't say that. Maybe it's not silly. Uh, From our good pals, the Kill by Kill podcast. Um, they want to know how long do you think it takes bugs or boogs? I'm going to go with, I'm going to go with bugs. Uh, I'm again, killing uh, name pronunciation uh, today. Mm-hmm. Uh, how long do you think it takes bugs to savor the last soul? Is it like a Tootsie Pop sitch? Um, honestly, really good scientific, important question that I'm going to spend a lot of time answering. Um, well, first of all, from what I remember, you can only lick Tootsie Pop like eight times and you eat it. That's what I remember that that's what I remember from the commercial with the owl back in the day. Yeah. Uh, so, and I'm going to make a note to look up that commercial and drop that in here. Cause it's in fact, gift in the question. So there you Excellent. go. You can look that up there. I mean, I, I look at it. I think he treats it more as like a jawbreaker situation. Cause I mean, mm. he, he, he there's pretty big gaps in between the, the killings and stuff so you know i think he treats it like a jawbreaker he licks on it for a little bit sucks on it for a little bit wraps it back in the tin foil puts it in a plastic mm. baggie saves it for later comes back he's to in it. his backpack he put, it keeps it in his backpack yes exactly <laughs> while he's editing his short films mm. so children's souls are kind of like everlasting gobstoppers yes Excellent. damn guys you, you we look- had like we, we, I like didn't know. I was like, oh, and then uh, shout out to your earnest, well thought out answers, guys. Mm-hmm. That is some deputy so and so type we, response. We, we take things very seriously here. Yeah, you I know, dig these that. These are very serious. Okay. I'm serious about snacks. That, that is one thing I'm very serious yes. about. Mm-hmm. What do we have? Uh, I got one last one. I don't know if we wanted to do it or not. We can do it. We can do it. I think we can answer this one with some kindness. So Sure. I'm not going to say who said this one, although they might reveal themselves. Um, mm-hmm. But just in case. Um, why? Let me actually get the exact language here. Mm-hmm. Stand by for incoming. Uh, why is this movie good, but both the director and writer are insufferable on Twitter? Um, okay. So- I think we've discussed in depth why the movie is good. The movie's great. Um, You know, you can mess, you can pick things apart that you don't, but like it's a great movie. I really like it. Yeah. As far as Twitter personalities, who who wants to go first? Well, yeah. Devon, take it away. (laughs) I'll I'll go ahead. I think I'll probably be nicer than you guys will be. Oh. Um, You know, I I, I, I think about us. Yeah, I'm like, yeah. oh, ow. Oh, I'm hurt. going by what I'm going by pre the the pre-show mm. talk is okay. what I'm going off of. Okay. Um, but uh, you know, I, I like that they both like to, you know, put out things um that I, I think they have good intentions of they they like to try to give, you know, advice or you know, their perspective on certain things for like, you know, other writers. But then also I think, you know, they, you know coming from a position of power they sometimes like to make statements about you know the film industry just based on where they are at in that and you know i think i think for the most part they're they're well intentioned um Mm -hmm. you know um uh scott is actually a uh the mentor of a friend of mine oh cool and close writing partner and um from what i from what i know about him you know he's a he's a 
good guy but he has like you know the the intentions of you know wanting to help and for you know to inspire but then i think um you know the the no filter basis though you know definitely comes out and you know he he's uh not afraid to to put put his dukes up i guess when when the time is necessary mm-hmm. yeah I think like, I don't, I won't speak for everything they've ever said on Twitter because I don't know everything they've ever said. So I'm kind of speaking pretty generally. I don't know if they've said something like truly nasty that I don't know about. Um, But I think like, I don't follow either of them on Twitter anymore. I actually have them both muted because I really like their movies. And I kind of want to be like, unless I found out they were saying something like hateful or like really, you know, obviously that I wouldn't just like blissfully ignore, but if they're just like kind of annoying, I'm like, I'd rather just not know about it. I I just Mm -hmm. don't need to see it. Um, They... I think sometimes get caught in this web of like Twitter speak is very specific. And I've talked about this before about how like the things that would get, you know, my friends and I'm like the things that we let's, I don't know how to word this, but like the things that we would all like shout about on Twitter. um, You know, if you went to like your job during the daytime, those things would probably be said really often and casually that you would have to like react very differently than like a Twitter dunk, um, which is a frustrating thing. So I think I kind of give the benefit of the doubt that they probably don't spend that much time on the internet. So they don't really understand the like Twitter speak. So a lot of the dumb things they say are much more like nice dad type who just like Mm -hmm. doesn't speak Twitter. So I kind of give them the benefit of the doubt there, which is why I'm just like, I'm just going to mute you because I don't care, but it's not that I'm like, oh, they're the worst. What a terrible thing. No. But of course there are moments like, you know, I can't wait for everything to go back to normal that you're just like, mm-hmm. boo, this is not the time for yeah. that kind of sentiment. And, you know, things like mm-hmm. that, that they certainly got rightfully eaten alive for. Uh, but like I said, forgive me if I'm incorrect, but I don't think they've actually ever been like actively like hateful or shitty no, or terrible, but it's just more like eye rolly and gaggy and insufferable. Mm-hmm. Recently, I mean, I'm sure by the time this comes out, like recently Scott Derrickson picked a pretty dumb fight with a person that no one should be talking to. And I think that I want to give him benefit of the doubt that he just like, again, didn't know what he was doing. And it was probably just like a bad take that he should have let go, but instead got into an argument. And like dug in the heels on it. Yeah. And then like bolstered the like attention of a guy who's pretty awful. But Mm -hmm. so again, benefit of the doubt, probably just a dumb mistake, not so much an evil mistake, but it sucks. there and was I like previously like with like Cargill and Derrickson, I think there was like previously like a professional relationship there where they had mm. written for Ain't It Cool News for years. Yes. You know, they had, I think they had gotten their start. Am I incorrect in thinking like they got their start with like Cigarette Burns, like the movie that John Carpenter directed for Masters of Horror? I thought that might have been a Cargill jam or my I way don't, I honestly don't know the answer to that. But yes, Cargill did get uh, a lot of his uh, status as a result of ain't it cool mm-hmm. news and um, and i'm not saying that cargo like then like forgives or absolves. Right. i guess that right changes the, right. the did they know about that guy mm-hmm. part um, which i didn't I, put together i could be wrong because i'm looking at like cargo's like writing credits right now and maybe i'm incorrect but i could have sworn like he had done um he had like written that movie cigarette burns i knew it had been like ain't it cool news writers but you know what i mm-hmm. think i'm wrong with that i'll i'll dunk on myself for that um, <laughs> Ooh, you're banned from twitter i but, know uh, but I, yeah. I'll, I'll keep my take on it like i think like i really like them I mean, if they made dr strange interesting to me which like he's mm-hmm. not a character that i normally like like holy shit 
they're behind like one of my favorite movies of the past 10 years. And I think like one of the things with like Hargill is he really tries to be like an advocate, an advocate for writing and kind of like a, um, a cheerleader for a lot of folks that struggle mm-hmm. with writing because he knows how hard it is. And he just wants to offer like as much positive encouragement as possible is how it often comes off. But at times it's kind of like, hey, when you're sitting on the toilet and you have the toilet roll in front of you, that's a perfect place to like bang out a few haikus. You know, it comes off like that. It's like, Jesus Christ, dude, like the world's falling apart right now. I don't want to spend like every spare second writing. I get that it comes from a place of like good intentions and, and, and care. So I'm more likely to kind of like roll my eyes a little bit. And I think that sometimes, um, and I am guilty of this, sometimes we can be like our worst selves online, not mm-hmm. realize like the things that I'd be like, why would you say that out loud? It's easy to type in a few characters. I know like last night, I know that like I had written like in prep for the show, I'm like in writing for the show, I'm like, I'm aware of two things. Like this movie's a masterpiece. And then I said something really snarky. And then after about 10 minutes, I'm like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm deleting that. Like, why do I have to be snarky? Like, why can't I just appreciate that this is a movie that I really love? And that like, Mm -hmm. why do I have to like, and who the fuck am I? Like, you know, honestly, I've I've had this running joke. Like, I wonder if sometimes like Sting, the former lead singer of the police, like walks into a room (laughs) and it's like, raise your hand if you wrote everything you do is magic. And like, everyone has to look at him. He's like, oh, that would be me. You know, like these dudes are like doing what they want to do and what they want to love and what a lot of us would give like our right arm for, mm-hmm. um, you know? And like, I am like talking about their movie at 10 o'clock at night on a Wednesday. So yeah, I mean, like, you know, yeah. Not that one is necessarily better than another, um, but you know, sometimes it's okay to like say like, eh, someone had a bad take on the internet. I can let it go and move on. Mm-hmm. and not be a jerk about it like those are the low-key things you know mm-hmm. if like if um they came out tomorrow with like well actually white supremacy is good and here's why <laughs> right yeah it's like me <laughs> like yeah i'm like maybe there's someone who's like uh do you not remember the time they said this horrible thing and like I, so i it's like where i'm like i don't remember or know everything they've said mm-hmm. but yeah, yeah i think the whole cargo thing it's like you know especially in 2020 obviously it's now 2021 but especially mm-hmm. in 2020 with the pandemic we we're having a lot of talks about the whole toxic positivity and about yes. Um, you know, all of these like wellness movements and kind of where they come from about like, do better and, you know, all this like, anyway, I think, you know, where I'm going with that. And I think it was frustrating to see like, you know, you're, you lost your job because of pandemic, you have all the time in the world to do this thing. And it's like, no, fuck you, man. I lost my job in the pandemic and I'm allowed to sit here and sulk about it for a while. And it really kind of rang of the whole um, like bootstraps vibe. And I think that's why in like 2020 specifically the whole like you have time to write just make it was like dude get lost Mm -hmm. like I think that's kind of what happened so but and it just almost feels like this is what I mean where I'm like he's just kind of that guy who probably doesn't speak Mm -hmm. Twitter and if you saw and I could roll like I'm I told you like I muted him and unfollowed him. I can't deal with it. But I saw him in real life. I'd be like, oh my God, Rod, like I'm a huge fan. Like, it's not that I'm sitting here like hating this guy. I'm just yeah. kind of like, this guy sucks at Twitter and I don't want to look at it anymore. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, you know, All like right. I still respect and really love their work. So 
I have a couple from our Facebook group. Yeah. Oh my God. Uh, I was like, I was like, let's not discuss it. And then it was like 22 no. minutes. <laughs> there we go. Um, okay. So from shoe shippers, uh, any chance you'll be doing ghoulies? The first two movies are pretty fun. Um, I'm going to say no. I'm going to say like, it would be a long time before we would do ghoulies just because like, I'm not a huge fan of like tiny creature movies. Um, yeah. So, like, if people were wondering if that's what we're going to get to, like, I, you know, I shouldn't say no, we'll never do it. Um, but I think it would be like, for, we have so many things we want to get to. Um, from Maya Madsen, who's one of our patrons. Thank you so much for coming a patron. Um, I actually really like this movie. The combo of Ethan Hawke's strong acting. I believe the guy, I believe this guy would make the choices he does agree. Uh, and exceptional Christopher Young score elevate it from a potentially silly standard haunting tale to a tense and upsetting thrill ride totally agree and i think yeah christopher young's score in this mm. movie is spot fucking on like it's really it's really strong and then there's also it is not the part of like the official score but there is a cut of music uh called gyroscope um, that plays over the final credits and it also plays during the moment when they are um, leaving that when they're basically packing their shit up and getting ready to mm -hmm. go when they have an absolute freak out that track I think is even though it's not specifically created for the movie it is one of the best uses of like music in a horror movie I've ever heard like fantastic. oh I thought those I thought those two were um, original score tracks. So if those weren't, those like just blended into the like blended in like super perfectly. But yeah, the, the score for this, like I mean, literally, like I was because I was uh, rewatching the movie while I was um, working on some other stuff, and mm -hmm. I just found myself dancing. I was like, oh man, like this is a this is a really really good jam. But then it's also because um, it has uh, kind of similar vibes to the. Um, American Horror Story yep. credits, you know, yeah. um, very, very similar vibes to that. So, and which came out, you know, kind of around the same time. Yeah. But uh, love the score for this movie. Yeah, absolutely. Christopher Young, he got his start on the uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge. He scored like a number of great horror movies. He's gone on to do some like incredible work um, in Hollywood. I think one of the more, you know, I don't think his work gets the kind of recognition that it deserves even though he's like been one of the more consistent composers uh working so yeah i would agree that it's a fantastic score and we're just waiting for Lindsay. she can hear us right now but i think she froze up so can you hear me she, i can hear you now yeah okay. you're just frozen okay my video is just frozen Carry all on. right so i think that's a good spot to wrap up our talk on sinister so Devon, tell us a little bit about your show, The Bloody Blunt Cinema Club. Yeah, uh, thank you for having me. This is, um, again, one of my favorite movies. I could talk about it all night with you guys. Um, but my podcast, The Bloody Blunt Cinema Club, is a podcast um, specifically looking at the subgenres within horror. So mm -hmm. each month we have a theme um, for the movies that we're talking about. And then when each guest comes on with a, a choice of a movie, you know, we kind of break that down into, you know, the subgenres within that. So like if we were mm -hmm. doing Sinister, this would kind of be under like maybe a crime drama month. And then it would mm. kind of go further into like the pseudo found footage, the family yeah. drama, 
And uh, that's kind of what we look at. So sometimes we spotlight one movie. Um, usually it's two, but sometimes we have upwards to four, six. Mm-hmm. You never know what you're going to get on the podcast. So um, it's always a good time. And I have a mixture of guests between writers and I've had um, the directors of a few mm-hmm. of the films come on to talk about their film specifically. So um, always a good time. You can find us on any of the podcast platforms mm-hmm. and on Twitter and Instagram at Bloody Blunt CC. And we were talking about your theme for next month a little bit off air. Like we were kind of messaging back and forth. What do you have like lined up in the works right now? So for February, we are doing romance and erotic horror um, with a couple of different angles to it. Um, We are talking the love witch, which if you follow me on Twitter, you know, is one of my all time. Yes. The love witch. I talk about it weekly, um, and so that is going to be um, one of the episode, uh, one of the movies that will be have a spotlight episode for it. So I'll get pretty uh, deep into that one, but then also look at movies such as um, Spring, that has mm. you know um, where you have the romance elements, mm-hmm. but then you have the um, you know monster movie elements and body horror elements as well. So we're gonna dig deep into that and. Um, and then we have uh, a couple couple of choices from the early aughts with um, mm-hmm. May from 2002, which I've never seen before. Oh, okay. So, so it'll be a first time watch for you. Yeah. So who do you do the show with? Um, the show is just me. So, okay. So um, I initially would go back and forth between doing solo episodes and episodes with guests, but mm-hmm. now I, I lean more 80% with guests, but then I still mm-hmm. pop in with um, solo episodes myself. So that way, you mm-hmm. know, if there's just a time that I just like kind of have a movie that I found personally super interesting that I just want to kind of decompress over, I'll just do a solo episode by myself occasionally, you know, mm-hmm. and you know, it lets me loosen up a little bit, but yeah, no co-host. It's just, I like to kind of keep just the rotating panel coming in and yeah. out. So. So for you, for listeners, like, I think that might be one of the most difficult things is like trying to do a show completely solo. Like, what do you think are some of the bigger challenges of that? I find that would be like super hard to just hear my own voice for 40 minutes. Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess that is what helps that I, you know, anytime I record a podcast, you know, bloody blunts, the kicker there is I'm a big stoner. That's my, okay. I, I love smoking. I love mm-hmm. watching horror movies. Those are my, you know, two loves in life. So, you know, I think between that, you know, I just get really stoned. I'm able to just like, kind of keep those solo episodes going because, mm-hmm. you know, I'm just like, I just kind of because once you like get in the groove of it, like, I guess that's kind of the hardest part going there, you know, but obviously that kind of um, adds a wrinkle into as far as like when you're promoting a podcast, obviously, yeah. you know, you have guests on your show so you can, you know, try to reach out to their audience yeah. and do the cross pollination type deal. So obviously that's a little bit hard to, harder to sell whenever I'm doing solo episodes some mm-hmm. of the time. And, you know, I'm just kind of banking on someone wanting to listen yeah. to just me, you know, so okay. I guess that's uh, probably the biggest challenge, but I, I had a podcast like three years ago and I pretty much did the same thing. I was hosting it solo and I had a, um, my best friend would like co-host on, mm-hmm. on there if I couldn't find a guest. So I didn't ever do like true solo episodes on that podcast, but, um, but yeah, it's usually always, I, I like the one-on-one interview style, even though I sometimes have two guests on at a time mm-hmm. on the podcast, but okay. I like the one-on-one style. And where can our listeners find you 
uh, online. Where are you on the socials? Um, mainly on Twitter and Instagram. My mm-hmm. personal page is underscore daddy disco. Um, I'm on Twitter all the time. And uh, my Instagram is where I post a lot of my photography and mm-hmm. short film work. Um, I do a lot of work in that area as mm-hmm. well. I'm an aspiring filmmaker. And I also do um, some uh, music media production as well. So you mm-hmm. can find me there on Twitter and Instagram. And you can find the podcast at Bloody Blunt CC on Twitter and Instagram. Awesome. Well, thank awesome. you so much for joining us today. And, you know, you're welcome back. So please, like, let's talk about other stuff that we're doing. And let's see, have you back on again. All right. Oh, yeah. I will definitely be floating around and you guys will make your way over to uh, the Blade Blunt Cinema Club. Yeah. And yeah. For sure. Excellent. <laughs> awesome. So, Lindsay, what do you get to promote this week? Um, I just uh, did a, I'm, the thing I'm really excited about this week is I just did an episode of the King cast. Um, yeah. So if you guys know the King cast, it's a Stephen a podcast for Stephen King obsessives on the Fangoria mm-hmm. podcast network. Um, I did an episode uh, basically where I come on as Andy Dufresne's uh, defense lawyer and um, basically use the information that you get from the book and from the novella and try to come up with a defense for our good buddy, Andy Dufresne. It's really fun. I had a really great time. Um, they announced it today and I'm feeling very good. So check that out. It is their Patreon mm-hmm. uh, bonus episode for this month. Were you able to get to friends off the hook or was he still sent to Shawshank or is that too much of a spoiler? I mean, we didn't have a judge per se. I kind of just uh, approached it like a moot where I, okay. I did an opening statement and was peppered with questions. But uh, I think I, I think I mounted a pretty solid defense for a good buddy Dufresne. Okay. Um, but yeah. You'll have to uh, hear what I came up with on the episode. Excellent. Excellent. Um, (laughs) Do you think this is where we should talk about the big change we have with our show? Sure. Um, So give me like one second. Just I'm not going to leave that part in. Um, Give it one second here. All right. So listeners, as you know, like we have done this show now for like 102 episodes and I want to deliver this show for like at least another hundred episodes. I think 250 might be a good number to end things on. Um, Or we can be like some of our friends and just keep going onward and upward. But I think one of the things that needs to happen for that to work and for us not to burn out is we're going to kind of change our recording schedule here a bit. Like we have delivered a show every week for about two years and actually in some cases more than one show in a week and you know Lindsay and I had a really good discussion last week and I know for me between recording like five episodes a month for this for the main feed and the Patreon and also recording four shows at a minimum a month for psychoanalysis podcast both of the shows tend to be like, we do a lot of research, we do a lot of writing, we do a lot of note taking, and we're like, something's got to give or we're going to burn ourselves out. So um, we are going to do the show instead of on a weekly basis, we're going to start delivering the show like on an every other week basis. And I think what that means is you're going to get like our best effort on every single show. It also means for me, on a personal level, like some, I look at like what we've already covered and I'm like, oh God, what do we have left? And I know there are some things I'm really excited for. And then there are times where I'm like, oh my God, we have to cover the Leprechaun series. And I really don't want to do that. 
this is a way for me to kind of like stave off the inevitable maybe. Um, and it lets us focus on movies that like we're really excited and bring our passion to. Cause let's face it. I think you can tell like when we cover something like alien, I'm super excited and passionate. And then when we cover something like Critters 4, I'm like, that was a movie that we watched. And it's just <laughs> like the nature of the show. Um, so it's it's I'm a little bit nervous about doing it. And I think like I've already talked to my daughter. I'm like, what if we did like an hour-long episode on each season of Cobra Kai and I throw that on the feed? And she's like, let's do it. So I think like it's gonna be hard for me not to do something every single week, even if it's not like the normal stuff. But I think in the long term, um, I will be much saner and better off for it. Um, and it means like this show continues for a number of years. I didn't think this show would last more than three months. I really did it. Um, and look what you did. I know <laughs> what you did. Look what I like you did. You, no. different ways awesome. I mean, that. it's hard to make such a huge change for sure, but I'm hoping that with that, you know, like you said, we're going to be more passionate, more mm -hmm. ready. We're going to, not that we're not passionate and ready. I mean, not that Mike hasn't been passionate and ready for every episode, but I'm just saying even more if possible. Yeah. And then, you know, give us the opportunity to kind of work on some bonus things, which is cool. Mm -hmm. um, we have some really cool ideas uh, for the main feed in the Patreon that yeah. um, I'm excited about. And obviously we still want to hear from you guys. I love answering questions on the pod. Yeah. And, you know, if there are things that you want to see from us, let us know. Um, and yeah. I think that's yeah, be and I will be really honest. Like, I do want to start devoting a little more time to the Patreon page because you guys that are on there have been like so supportive and amazing. And I think that um, I am underwhelming you with what we're delivering. So I want, and we're actually, when we hop off of this, we're going to be recording a new segment for it, um, which will be a little bit looser. And I'm really excited to start doing, but I want to give the folks that are like, you know, we love all of our listeners, but the ones that are like, hey, here's a couple bucks to keep doing what you're doing. Um, that means a ton to us. Like, I know like our friend, Nicole Goble, just signed up as a patron for us at like the 10th oh. level. Uh, and she's doing incredible work with her um, bodies of horror uh, over on Joe's network. So speaking of uh, mm -hmm. the Anatomy of a Scream podcast yes, network, thank you. do you mind if no. I... Um, what if I so, said yes? Would you be like, I know. <laughs> You're like, I do. Yeah. I know. I was like, oh, should I be plugging another thing? Absolutely. <laughs> you can plug anything. We, we, I love plugging other things because we're a community. Yeah. So, speaking of the Anatomy of a Screen podcast network, so again, run by Valeska Griffiths and Joe Lipset, who was here for Final Destination Four. Um, they uh so basically what it is is joe explained it on that episode but um it comes with mentors i am one of the mentors it's essentially you pitch a mini series we'll you know if we like it we'll mentor you and help you uh it's a really good way if you've been thinking about creating a podcast and you kind of need that final push we can help you with it the pod squad um covers the hosting covers all you know is going to do the marketing and advertising is going to give you some hints on things like recording and editing or seminars and things like that put together um the reason why i mentioned it is we are currently accepting pitches for january so um, it's going to be, you know, I think a biannual pitch grab. So it doesn't happen often. Uh, now's the time. If you're thinking about pitching a podcast, um, do it. Now's your chance. Do it. Find Anatomy of a Scream on Twitter. It's in my Twitter. Uh, I think it's in my Twitter bio, if not Grim mm -hmm. Magazine is, which will direct you there. But I'll also have, I tweet um, the um, 
application a lot, um, yep. but you can go to anatomyofascream.wordpress.com and you can check it out there yeah. and yeah, do it. If you're they like some... listening to this, like I could do that, you should yeah. apply. And trust me, if I can do this, any of you, <laughs> now I sound like Cargill. Now, yeah. I can do this. Get, you know. Yeah. Grab your bootstrap. Um, yes. No. Um, so, you know, to our listeners, follow us over on Twitter at Pod and Pendulum over on Twitter. We have a nice little Facebook group going that we keep adding things here or there too. So Pod and the Pendulum, Facebook.com, Pod and the Pendulum. Um, in two weeks, we will be back with um, Sinister 2. And then we're like planning our dive into French horror, which I'm wicked excited for. So scary. And, for. you know, I will say like, you know, Mike is... Honestly, like my daughter definitely needs stuff to do right now because this pandemic sucks. Mm -hmm. um, and like my self-care right now is her and I watching Cobra Kai together and um, like having a running commentary over it. Is you know, she's like, Dad, why do you hate Sam LaRusso so much? Like, it's really scary. So we're going to like so have some fun what you're saying is stuff. your daughter should be pitching her pod to the pod squad, to the Anatomy oh Screen podcast, her Cobra Kai podcast to the Anatomy Screen podcast network. Oh I'm God. just saying, If there's room it. for a 10-year-old, absolutely. <laughs> think about it. Think about it. We'll think about it. I'll talk to her. I don't want to force her. She doesn't want to do it so, all the time. Think about it. Just think about no. it. Okay. All right, <laughs> listeners. We'll be back next week with Sinister 2. And we are out. Thank you.